a bunch of witty bitches. Hey, Papa. Hey, I have a quip. You have a quip. We'll put that for a It's just cadals. Pero pepo. Pepo po pepo pe. Pero pepo. Skilibi papadoop. What's up, everybody? Welcome to Witty Banter, the NASA special Ew. Witty Goes to Space. Woo-hoo. I'm one of your hosts, Chase Williams, joined by Hunter Brickman Dorset. What up, boop? Normal Max Scott. <laughs> yep, just the regular guy. And Spaceman Max Kelleher. Spaceman. <laughs> the man of the hour, the man who made all of this possible, dude. Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Yeah, I've been like a long time listener for a few weeks now. When did you first start listening? Well, long time listener for a, a long, few weeks. Long time. Yeah. A few weeks. It's a long time. It's uh, a very long time in Witty Banter. Here. I've listened from 56, episode 56, up to the. I have not heard the episode you released this past Friday. Okay. That's amazing. I'm surprised you listened at all. So, so. quite a few. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Over 20. That's more like several months. Yeah. Yeah. I really liked yeah. your first email when you started listening and you're like, I like what you guys are doing. You're shouting and no one's listening. It's like, <laughs> you're yes, into we the are. infinite void. <laughs> yeah, it was shouting <laughs> into the void. Yeah, you guys were doing like an hour long show and it's like, and no listener mail. All right. We'll see you guys next week. <laughs> I love you guys. Yeah, that's there amazing. We go. <laughs> doing Thank it for you. you. For reminding Who us cares of that. That's great. Yeah. We're doing a show. You can't get butthurt when people don't, don't, uh, contribute you know you got to do it yourself it's for you i like it well max we've been talking about this one on the show for a little while now even the listeners knew that at some point we're going to venture down to houston to visit nasa and it was through you that this was made possible so our deepest thank yous for the tour which we're going to get into soon enough and also thank you so much for coming on it's going to be a lot of fun now normally witty banter we do beer reviews this episode is the one that's going to be out of the normal timeline it's probably maybe it's not canon in witty banter lore, <laughs> but we still have beers, and we're going to do something a little special with them. Yeah. We were supposed to bring three beers. Only no, two made it to the house. Don't even. <laughs> I didn't put, oh hey, it is a fact. I didn't put any blame out there. <laughs> no blame has been put, but it is a yep. fact. Yep. All right. There's two beers here when there should be three. Um, <laughs> good luck with your choosing of the two beers. It might have, been, you know, it might be a little tricky now. But would have been probably pretty easy had the third beer made it. Oh yeah. So but, the idea uh, of the show was each of the three of us was going to bring a beer for all of us to drink, but for you to drink, and you were going to choose who brought the best beer. Sure. And the first one that we're starting with is mine, and it is the Wild Sour series called Here Goes a, Here Goes a Nothing from mm-hmm. Distill Brewery. Do you got some info for me? I Hunter? do. I kind of like how it rolls off the tongue. Here goes a nothing. Yeah. You know? Um, so it's a 5% alcohol by volume goes a style. And it was, it was brewed by Distill Brewery out of Illinois. And their the little dogs just totally <laughs> taking a whiz. That's a bad dog. Exactly. Okay. There we go. All right, we're back from the bathroom break. <laughs> Everybody good? Oh man. Is he? Oh, I thought he was. Yeah, good. he's going for round two. <laughs> Just staring right at Stored you. Stored an extra gallon in the tank. You know where this earring goes? He is right <laughs> here. All right. Well, you know, this beer kind of smells a little reminiscent of, uh, it's pretty vinegary. A little sour. Yeah. So what's going on with this beer, man? Yeah. So again, uh, alcohol by volume, 8.5%. It's a Goza style. Damn. Brewed 8.5? by, yeah, or no, 5.0 might be. <laughs> that was horrible. That's a big uh, difference. Well, <laughs> it's got 12 IBUs brewed by Distill Brewery at our Illinois, and they have a little bit of notes here. It says, our Lice Pig style Goza undergoes 
a spontaneous fermentation similar to Belgian-style uh, lambic beers and exhibits a complexity of acidic flavor and aroma contributed by wild yeast. Uh, lactic fermentation. So, so here's the deal. When I when we were at the beer store picking beers to bring here, I basically went to the guy and I said, "Give me the most sour beer you have, like something that we're gonna have to grapple with." Just make you pucker. Man. Yeah, and like the idea here was, well, I don't think anyone would really be willing to try this, and so I'm gonna take advantage of the fact that we're gonna do a segment where each one brings a beer to make us all drink this thing because I think it's gonna be wild. Yeah. <laughs> wild sour, if you will. Exactly. Has I anybody? Get it now. Is anybody taking... I've smelt it a bit. It smells vinegary, man. dude. I'm trying to get past the nose on this one, man. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's like a warhead. <laughs> I think you just woke up, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm here now. Um, I feel like I just inhaled a, a liquid warhead. Yeah, it, it talks on the side of it having uh, like lemon, lime, and other citrus-like qualities. I feel like that one's going to be... <laughs> In what, case it wasn't sour enough. <laughs> yeah, but you know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't call those flavors sour as much as, like, they do, like, cut and make you pucker up and yeah. stuff. Like, you put them in a drink specifically to flavor that drink light. Because, like, a little few drops is just going to totally take over. Yeah. You know? And the fact that it's like, yeah, we got all of them and they're right here. Yeah. So, gozas are supposed to be, um, like, salty mm-hmm. as well. And this one, I think, yeah, it says ale brewed with coriander and sea salt. Yeah. I, I'm getting it. So it's an interesting, it's a super interesting style, you know, it's super um, tart. You've got, in this one, you've got the vinegar in there and then sea salt is just like a weird thing to spritz in there too. What do you guys, I mean, how do you feel about it when first Chug-o first meter? Blush? <laughs> it's a very oh, nice, took a nice big old half. swig. Oh. It's only poured half, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say. Let's go. What do you uh, but it's good, man. I, I mean, I've had other sour beers that I like less than this, for sure. Yeah. And um, it's one that, it's like a frontier that I'm ready to try and, you That's know, awesome. embark on. Because it's like up and coming, or not like up and coming, but like, you know, coming into the forefront now, I see it a lot more commonly. Like, yep. it's, it's something that I've just kind of gotten into lately because right. of you guys. And it's so unique in its flavor that I'm very excited to see more. Max, out. what's your experience with Spaceman Max? Yeah, yeah, we need to somehow just figure this out. <laughs> Spaceman Max, what is your experience with beer? I've seen in your library that you have an awesome collection of whiskeys. Sure. So I know that you're a drinking man. What is um, what's your experience with beer, and how are you an enthusiast of it? What are you What are you bringing to how you're going to be tasting this thing? Sure. Yeah. So uh, back in College Station, I went to Texas A&M University. We have a uh, Irish pub called O'Bannon's. Yeah. And they have a little card, 75 beers, and if you drink them all, you get a mug. And then they have them just rotating out, and <laughs> right. I have two mugs. Oh, damn. So I've made it through the gambit, the, uh, beer the gauntlet, man. twice. Awesome. So I have uh, drank quite nope. a few different beers and had a couple sours, had some ghosts. Cool. I'm more of a stout porter guy all normally right. if I'm going to reach for a beer, but I like it, man. That's awesome. I didn't realize that you were so well-versed. It probably <laughs> yeah. just makes me more insecure about our beer. I was going to say, yeah, when you were just like shutting us all down all day with your knowledge, I was like, finally, this is our time. Let's sit down. He's not going to, oh, he knows all about that too. That's great. Yeah, well, no, just Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> not so smart. No, oh, you are smart. Great. <laughs> all right. Well, I think we can go ahead and, tra- you know, let's, let's keep thinking about this beer and then when we're ready for the next one, we'll bring it on. But uh, I think we can go ahead and transition to the meat and bones of what the show is going to be. So this is Witty Banter. In space. Beep. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear him. Spaceman Max, give me your beeps. Beep. <laughs> 
beep up up beep up beep up. You can tell an intelligent man by his beeps because he's got that jazz flair to them. Yeah, he's has that scat. It's a thinking. It's a thinking man's beeps. It's thinking man's beeps. It's good. So I have been inundated with NASA and space-based facts today. I've seen a lot of sites, and honestly, I feel like I'm still taking it all in and computing. Yeah. But Spaceman Max. Why don't you just take us on, give us a little recap of what we did today so the listeners are all on the same page. Sure. So yeah, started the day off over at Rocket Park, right outside of Johnson Space Center. Open up that door into the kind of the warehouse, you see that life-size Saturn V rocket, that behemoth of a rocket. I feel like we should stop right there. We're going to talk about that one, man. <laughs> what, 18 and a half million pounds, right? Just a stupidly big rocket. <laughs> I, I was just floored by when we first walked in that warehouse and the immensity of what I was looking at. And I honestly felt kind of stupid because when we first walked in there, they had little models of what we were about to see outside. I was like, is that the rocket? (laughs) Is that like the real thing? And then you're like, yeah, just wait. And we open it up. It's like, oh no, here's a building that is a rocket. Yeah. Yeah. It's huge when you look at it and then you understand the historical significance of it and it just grows. Yeah. And you understand what you're looking at, you know? Yeah. It was it blew me away. Like its scale has been what has made me like I feel like experience the sublime as far as the things I've experienced recently in my life. Mm-hmm. And standing next to just the size of even like the rocket boosters on the back and like seeing how many cables and doodads yeah. and like washers and knobs. whoppers and whoppers in there. <laughs> Gongazorgas, like it was nuts. Dr. Seuss made this rocket. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was crazy. I really liked the thrusters or the bo- booster things at the back. You know, like because you had several like versions. Like m- midway down the rocket, you'd have like these thrusters. Then a little bit farther down, you have these. And at the very back, there's just like gigantic, sure, yeah, like house-sized <laughs> thrusters. Um, but yeah, it was really cool, man. There was a lot of really interesting history you were throwing down. One of those instances where. We just started with a small little group of us, and then because this guy so a knowledgeable, yeah, he was a straight Everybody up tour just guide. started like jumping in. There was like forty people <laughs> by yeah. the end of it, so it was pretty yeah. cool. Like moving with you and everything. It's like all right now down here, and everybody's like okay, like moving down with you. It's like you hey, developed man. a nice tour guidey voice. Oh yeah, you're projecting, man. It's not yeah, his first it's something time. Something you pick right? up on, yeah, for sure. The yeah. first time I did it, it's like hey, I'm just here with like my buddies. Like I don't know <laughs> why you guys are following me, but now it's kind of it's it's nice to see the communities behind it. And people show up there, and they're not just like, oh, whatever, it's a rocket. They want to learn about it. People you know, hear someone talking about the Apollo program, and they fall around. They want to learn about it. That's yeah. why they're there. And you know that everybody that like bought the um, like little headphone set felt really felt like a duffus. Like, yeah. God dang it. <laughs> this is 15 bucks. Yeah, it's all got it for free. A live performance. They took their headphones off. They're like, this is a waste. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, but how about that kid dropping the the gray? name, yeah, the Gene Krantz on me. Gene Krantz, yeah, of course. Usually point at this flight director, um, Gene Krantz. He's a flight director for um, Apollo 11, Apollo 13. And uh, usually I point at him, and no one knows who he is, so I just sort of explain him and his significance in the NASA program. I point to him and you know give the crowd a chance to just you know show off their knowledge. Anyone know this or guy? Or to feel stupid. Some little kid just raises his hand. I know. And I'm like, oh sure you do, little kid. Yeah. Who do you think it is? He's like, oh, it's Gene Kranz. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's amazing. correct. I'm so sorry. I that love is, you. Um, yes, You're hired. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So you showed us the, the the rocket, and then you took us through a good bit of the history of the Apollo program and everything, kind of before and even after and stuff. And yeah, one through seventeen, and then sort of the significance of the Apollo program and what it led to. Yeah. Um, and so after that, we took a turn for um, the International Space Station, which I didn't even realize going into it that that was the majority of kind of what NASA is involved with. And that's sort of what the day to day 
a job, it sort of seems, is servicing the space station. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Since the shuttle uh, retired in 2011, the only kind of permanent vehicle we have that we uh, that requires our attention is the International Space Station. We have a good group of people working on Orion, which is like the new manned spacecraft. We saw a little bit of that in Building 9. Yeah. But uh, the day-to-day of NASA is definitely focused on the International Space Station. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so if you want to just go ahead and finish out what we did on the tour, and then we, I've got some questions for you. we got a ton of questions from the audience as well. Cool. And yeah. uh, I'm interested to get the, the, the platform built and the conversation started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. So we left uh, Rocket Park. We saw the Mercury Redstone rocket outside, the one that looks like just child's play, that yeah. college rocket course kind of. Yeah. They just took a uh, military real. missile, October took a bomb off the top. <laughs> put an empty capsule on it, put Alan Shepard on there in 1961. <laughs> Shoot him in the space. Yeah, yeah, seriously. His final words, they were about to start the countdown, and he just goes, don't fuck this up. That's really awesome. That's right before the launch, yeah. Don't fuck this up. That's <laughs> my last words. So we, uh, yeah, so we saw the Saturn V and the uh, Mercury Redstone, kind of what six years with you know, brilliant engineers and 4% of the federal budget can get you. So we left there, and we went over to Building 9, the Space Vehicle Mock-Up Facility, that has the life-size International Space Station. Talked about all the different modules, all the different nodes, what they do. And then you know, saw the uh, robotics, the, uh, the yeah. mad scientists working their uh, Dude, the robotics stuff. stuff. <laughs> I feel like we should take a pit stop on that little section because uh, that was a trip, seeing some yeah, of the robotics. Man. You had that like arachnid robot. The arachnobot. Yeah. yeah, which was meant for, it was like a prototype for transportation without wheels, essentially. Yeah, I, yeah. I've talked to people, no one really knows why it was made, but the leading theory is that it's a different form of locomotion. Rather than motors and wheels, you have these sort of legs moving like a spider might move. Yeah. Well, I can also see how that would be beneficial if you're on like an extremely rough terrain where rocks might be, not be able to get the job done. You need to like place your foot onto something. Yeah, super uneven. You'd be able to crawl up over like a <laughs> space mountain. But you were, you were telling us there's a robot on the International Space Station now that does a variety of tasks that robots should do. Sure, yeah. We got Robonaut. Robonaut. <laughs> he has his own, uh, his own um, little drawer, his own little payload out in the lab in the... Uh, Destiny module, I think it's called. Yeah, you said he's used to like handle more dangerous things. That's the idea. Slash things that like are, are monotonous. monotonous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My understanding is he does more monotonous stuff. You have to talk to a robo lead for that. I'm not totally familiar with what Robonaut is used for primarily, but I do know that he's up there and that he's used. Cool. It's pretty cool. Like that we we can we can say yeah we got we've got people and robots working our shit up yeah, in space. how many people work here cool. well, how many robots work here <laughs> yeah, we were looking at what some do they of the, get paid some of the robots that you have and like they'll have like torsos and heads but then they don't necessarily need to stand and stuff like humans so we were talking about that surreal weird like feeling in the pit near your stomach when you see like a robot who's like legs jingle jangling yeah. like, <laughs> interacting with that oh, yeah. it's gonna be weird I have these legs to make you feel comfortable <laughs> <laughs> wiggling around, strangely around you, like this is horribly disturbing. Yeah. So from there, yeah. So we left Building Nine, hopped back in the car, drove over to Building Thirty, the Chris Craft Mission Control Center. We uh, stopped by the famous silver doors of Mission Control. Got a cool, uh, cool photo op there. Then went into the uh, the sports bar. Yep. Mm-hmm. The uh, conference room where we have the international meetings, where we have a bunch of different screens. People out of Munich, people out of uh, Japan, uh, all over Europe, really. And then we have uh, people out of Russia, out of Canada. We're all meeting up and talking about the direction we want the ISS to go and sort of what scientific payload should be priority and safety of the crew and that kind of stuff. Like, what's our forward plan? Yeah. Mm. 
That was a cool room, man. I, I love just seeing all the clocks on the walls for yeah. the international times. I'm like, oh, this is this feels important. Like, <laughs> it's nine in Munich right now. Everybody's got a microphone. That. <laughs> yeah. I think that building was definitely my favorite part so far. Um, was getting to stand in the mission control room where they did like the Apollo program stuff. You know, sure. It, you said that that mission control room itself is a national. Uh, monument, right? Yeah, National Historic Landmark. Yeah, the Ficker 2, the Apollo Flight Control Room. I think that's, like, it's just so important to be able to, we got to sit behind those desks and you can even press the buttons and stuff because yeah. they don't work anymore. Like, <laughs> yeah. That was incredibly satisfying. Dude, yeah. just a getting button to go that to a mission center and press a button. Ergonomic, a nice click yeah, to them. Excellent. <laughs> Whoever designs those buttons. I really don't think, we, like, it's an overstatement to talk about how cool those buttons feel. And, like, in a world right now where everything's touch-based on, like, a glass sleek screen. You forget like, what it's like to hit a hard click. Get a good old-fashioned <laughs> click. flip and lock, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was pretty, pretty I mean, dope. The whole experience, I feel like, really flared up my uh, romantic side about just sci-fi genre type fantasy stuff. You know, like seeing the rocket boosters on the in the Saturn V, right? Yeah, Saturn on the Saturn V. Like, I looked, I was like, this looks like Star Wars. You know, like this, like it, in the seventies when they were making this, they're like, well, it's got to look real. This is probably the shit that they were looking at. You yeah, know what sure. I mean? And like seeing it in person and being like, oh, I, I kind of get it again. Because one of the things I'm, I want to talk about is is like what the importance of even just space flight and travel is. And even and looking at it then and there, just in that moment, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is important. You know, like it's I, yeah. I'm happy to be looking at the real thing right now. And just seeing it is inspiring me to like want it to exist even, you know. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I felt similarly whenever we were uh, watching the lot Ficker Two, right? Yeah, Ficker Two is the Apollo flight control room. Oh, okay. So we were looking at the live one, which was Ficker One. Yeah, we were looking at live ISIS operations when the sun came up over Australia. Yeah, yeah, that was Ficker One. Yeah, and like watching straight up like the world <laughs> like yeah, opening man. up <laughs> to the sun was pretty pretty dope. It gives you a sense of like, oh shit, like. That's us. <laughs> Everything about the experience today was just a constant reminder or realization of the sense of scale and scope of everything that's happening in that building mm -hmm. and everything that and all of the consequences of what's going on in that building. Yeah. Yeah. No, like because you brought up one. I think it was Apollo 12 that got the first picture of Earth, right? Eight. Apollo 8 got eight, the first yeah, picture got the, of Earth. Yeah, did the, uh, the roundabout and they took a yeah, photo of the Earth rise. Yeah, actually took a photo was the first person or first people like actually take a photo of the Earth. And I was just thinking like, damn, before that, it was just a guess. Yeah, we could. <laughs> it was just like a bold estimation of what it looked like. Yeah, we could have had bunny ears on top of the Earth and no one would have known. <laughs> yeah, somebody could have been holding us. We were like, we been asking where Atlas is at. Like, you know what I mean? That was just like crazy to think that like, you know, I've seen pictures of the Earth a million times, but back in the day, you had no real idea of what it looked like. Right. It's it crazy. Yeah. So, so I want to kind of ask you guys go around the table, um, Normal Max and Hunter. Yeah. <laughs> what was your favorite part of the afternoon? I mean, we're still pretty close to it and it might, maybe it'll change over time, but so far, what do you, what do you think sitting with you the, the, the most? I think hmm. being in the Apollo control room was definitely the most, the thing I'll probably take away most. Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was crazy, like getting to see how huge the rocket was and getting some of the facts behind it. Hearing a lot about all the, all the Apollo stuff was really fascinating as well. But just being, being in a room that was of incredible historical significance right. and like where like we basically changed the course of, of history, uh -huh. you know, in that room. 
um, for for a lot of different reasons. So yeah, I don't know. I think that was that was the one I'll take away most. Yeah, definitely the same for me. But I will just comment on uh, when we walked into the first. Uh, like, you know, huge warehouse with the rocket inside and you were explaining each piece as we were going down. Right. And we got maybe like 15 feet into the <laughs> rocket and you're like, and the rest is all the fuel tank. And it yeah. Like, and yeah. you feel that scope of like, oh, you need this much to push us off of the planet. Yeah. It's just insane. And so, the crazy yeah. loop about fuel costs weight, yeah. so you need more fuel to push the that counter fuel. <laughs> the fuel you just added, because now it's heavier because of all the fuel that's on it. It's just like it my brain. Like it's like some sort of like weird puzzle that I got to put together. <laughs> but also just made me think of like any, you know, like anime or something with like spaceships in it and how small they are and like we'll go across the galaxy and it's just like well that would never <laughs> but now I'm thinking like where's all their fuel that doesn't that, that yeah. wouldn't be right wait a minute yeah hold on now I mean I'm also thinking about just the team of those people who are in mission control like you know the team of that you're training to be a part of um, Spaceman Max and thinking about how it's something as basic as finding the right uh, f uh, flight director like getting assembling the right team of people who can work together and who trust each other enough and have the enough ability to make these missions happen and these missions are like as we've come to realize throughout the course of the day how many awkward things can go wrong that you don't think about that I've sure. never thought yeah. about how dangerous these missions are and how it's just a team of it's just it's just people who do it and I really liked how uh, you mentioned when we were going through the Apollo stuff, you know, you'd say, oh, you know, the brilliant engineers, the brilliant minds who have made these rockets and gone this, but also the courage and the bravery of the people who go up there. And I kind of like how when you juxtapose those together, the courage and the bravery, it does take almost like that is as important and it is as big as the brilliance of the people who made the rocket. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You think about you know what it would take to keep the ISS going and like what tool you would want on board the ISS to figure out how to keep the ISS uh, in orbit. Well, it's a person. Yeah. What, you know, what else is as adaptable? What else can learn and, and guess and then correct its guess that quickly and is that versatile and can hold tools and make you know, good guesses about what it should do in order to accomplish a task? A, right. you know, a person is obviously something very precious, but also can be viewed as like the best and most versatile tool you could have to figure out you know, what to do, especially brilliant astronauts with PhDs and a bunch of military experience. They're the kind of people you want up there who are sort of battle-tested, and when shit hits the fan, they're not going to like freeze up and, and get nervous because they have been shot at before. You know, right. yeah. you have ex-military people uh, make a lot of uh, very good and brave decisions, but then you have the PhD candidates who are very brilliant people who can do a lot of the different science experiments that give the ISS sort of its prestige, I think. Yeah. Well, Spaceman Max, I think this would be... So that's kind of what we did throughout the day. I think it's be a good time to pivot a little bit. I want to talk uh, a bit about yourself and your background with getting to NASA and sort of what you do. And I'll use a listener question to kind of springboard us into that. Okay. This comes from Alex Van Aken and his wife, Kayla. The first question is, my wife, Kayla, and myself want to know what initially attracted the what initially attracted you to NASA and science? And in your opinion, what is the most important result of NASA's existence? So you can take the first Ooh. question. Um, let's talk a little bit about how you got to NASA and what you're, and what you're training to do. Sure. Yeah, so I uh, am a mechanical engineer by education. Graduated from Texas A&M University in May of 2015. Uh, had two internships while I was in college. Luckily, both of them paid. Had one of them <laughs> at Newport News Shipbuilding at a Newport News, Virginia. 
They did uh, the nuclear-powered aircraft carriers and stealth submarines for the Navy. Nice. So we got to, uh, did a lot of um, work in the metal shop and got to talk to a lot of the welders and and people that physically build these ships and these dry docks. And then they float the ships once they're ready and then they get going. And they were refurbishing, I think, like the USS Lincoln while I was there. Oh, wow. Cool. So we got to walk around an aircraft carrier. Yeah. Holds 5,000 people. I mean, it's a floating city. Exactly. It's, it's a fortress. Nuts. <laughs> yeah, it's a they fortress. are a huge, <laughs> thick concept. Yeah. It, they were, uh, that was a lot of fun. That was cool. And then uh, the next summer, I worked with GE Transportation out of Erie, Pennsylvania. Worked on their locomotives. And uh, basically how GE works is there's a bunch of different businesses underneath it. And then whatever you intern with, you can say, yeah, I want to interview for a full-time spot with this business. Right. Or you can kind of... Sh- throw the dice and try to get with a different business because you're interning with GE as like a company. Yeah. So I was in transportation with locomotives and it was awesome. I had a blast, but I didn't want to work with locomotives like permanently. Uh-huh. So they said, yeah, you're guaranteed an internship spot or an in, uh, interview for a full-time spot. And I said, yeah, I don't want to work with locomotives. So I uh, applied <laughs> for energy and healthcare and they just hired their interns. So right. I didn't get an interview. So I was like, right. ah, whatever. And then, uh, so I graduated and uh, applied to a bunch of different spots and got some interviews and some offers, but the uh, NASA gig came up, a flight controller position. So, uh, you know, being from Houston, we have the Houston Astros, the Houston Rockets, the Houston yep. Comets. Yep. It's just Space City, man. And as you said, the very first <laughs> word mentioned, ever said in yeah. space was Houston. Or on the moon, right? Or yeah, the, right yeah. landed on the moon. Yeah, first word is Houston, tranquility base here, the eagle has landed. So that's kind of a feather, I think, in Houston's cap. Yeah. You can't, you can't change that. Exactly. The first word from the moon is and forever will be Houston. <laughs> yep. You know? Pretty Love dope. It. It's kind of a cool spot. So, yeah, I mean, growing up in Houston as an engineer, you always just think, like, well, there's NASA. But, you know, I'm not going to work that. I'm not a PhD. I'm not, you know, super brilliant. But uh, luckily, I uh, applied and got a uh, phone interview. The guy named Stein, he was a lead out of the Spartan Group. They do, like, power distribution, power generation on the ISS. So they uh, have the solar arrays and all that kind of stuff. That's their equipment. And uh, passed the uh, phone interview. Had some, like, crazy trick questions we can go over if you guys are... Curious oh. what Give I was actually asking. Yeah, I was yeah, going to ask one. you, like, why like, Why did they hire you? No, <laughs> yeah. So I know yeah. you, yeah. why did yeah. they What did you lie you? about? No, uh, I was, yeah, I was wondering, no like, how, yeah, how that interview went and, like, what you did so well to let you get into the next wave that I think so many people obviously are going to fall at that point. Like, you're going to cut off a lot of the fat from those interviews, and then you go to the next one and the next one. Like, sure. Yeah, what happened? Yeah, uh, I think... With everything career-related, I think there's a little bit of luck there just because the guy that was interviewing me liked my answers. If it was someone else, I might have not liked him, you know, and then that would have been that. But uh, he said, okay, I'm going to ask you a question here, and you're going to have 60 seconds to think of an answer. I'm going to need you to answer in no more than three or four sentences and using terminology that a sophomore in high school could understand. Nice. Do you understand the rules of the question? I was like, oh, God. Uh, Yeah, I guess. I don't know. He goes, all right. I'm going to start your 60 seconds right when I'm finished answering the question. Or, yeah, when I'm, right when I'm first asking the question. And then, uh, again, you'll have one minute to think of an answer. Again, a few sentences, no technical terms. Okay? He goes, why is the sky blue? <laughs> starts a timer. It's like, oh, shoot. So you can fall if you don't know why the sky is blue, right? You could just say something wrong, right. technically incorrect. And yeah. that would show that you maybe don't know as much as maybe an engineer at that level should know. Um, or you could not know it well enough to describe it through uh, analogies and simple terms that other people can understand. So uh, a lot of what we do at NASA is based on communication. I think anybody with enough time could be a flight controller. It's not like a special skill set. Anyone with enough simulations could just get there. But a lot of it is being able to communicate technical ideas 
quickly and efficiently and simply so that a flight director who doesn't know what your system is like can understand what it is you want to do and then give you a go to do it. So, uh, yeah, I thought for a a few seconds and then made some odd analogy about photons from the sun being like pinballs. And then you have like a pinball field with bumpers and the bumpers are molecules in the atmosphere. So high energy pinballs are blue and they're bouncing off of all of the the bumpers in the pinball field. They're bouncing off of all of the molecules in the atmosphere and then red pinballs are really lazy and they only kind of bounce off of one or two molecules and then go down the chute. So what you're seeing are these collisions between these high energy blue photons and the molecules in the atmosphere. And he starts laughing at me. He's like, oh yeah, that's correct, I guess. I don't <laughs> yeah, know. He's yeah. like, the whole thing. Give me a hard time he's of like, like are how you serious? Is that really what? <laughs> <laughs> Could have fooled me. Wait, are you serious? <laughs> But yeah, yeah, that was like one of paper, like the like eight unanswerable question. Like, oh shit. <laughs> so he asked you several, like eight, is what you're saying. Yeah, there was another one. Like, if you're in a room that's perfectly insulated, and you uh, plug in a refrigerator, and you open up the door of the refrigerator, what happens to the temperature of the room? Hmm. Interesting. So you might say like, oh, it gets colder because the refrigerator is cooling the air, or like it equalizes with the refrigerator at some level. But the answer is it gets warmer. The room gets warmer because you're adding energy to the system. Right. The refrigerator takes in warm air and then makes it cold, but still, there's still heat. It still has to reject heat somewhere. Right. So it rejects that heat into the room. So mm-hmm. then the refrigerator is getting electricity, so it's cooling itself as well. So the room <laughs> just gets warmer and warmer as long as you leave the refrigerator running. So. Again, as an engineer, you might say, like, oh, it gets colder. And it's like, well, that's not correct. You right. know, it's kind of this out-of-the-box engineering kind of thing. <laughs> You're nope. not fit for Click. So after <laughs> a dial tone, like, well, I guess I'm not hired. So after the uh, rigorous interview process, you were hired. And then what's the role that you, you occupy now? Yeah, so after that, there was an on-campus interview. And after that, there was a um, sort of an all-day on-site interview. And that was a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, so right now I work with Ethos. We are the life support experts for the International Space Station. So we do like uh, atmospheric monitoring to so make sure the crew has enough O2 and there's not too much CO2. We do oxygen generation. We do uh, CO2 scrubbing. We do water generation. We uh, manage the pressure of the ISS. We do like air conditioning and like climate control. And we do internal cooling. So we have like power distribution boxes and uh, critical avionics on our computers that get warm and they need water cooling. So I make sure that you know nothing goes wrong with the water cooling. Also in charge for emergencies, and that's kind of a big feather I think in Ethos's cap. That uh, when the worst thing happens, Ethos is the one that steps up and raises their hand and sort of starts taking responsibility. So we have three sort of emergencies on the International Space Station. We have fire, obviously not a good thing to happen because you can't like leave, you can't go outside and call a fire department. Like you're just <laughs> burning. You have to do something. Yeah. So we deal with fires. We deal with what we call a rapid depress, rapid depressurization. The idea being like a meteorite MMOD or some sort of like orbital debris comes in and punctures a hole in one of the modules and you start venting atmosphere to space because, you know, space is out of vacuum. So the high pressure interior of the structure is just venting gas overboard and the whole, the whole kit and caboodle is going to go to vacuum if you don't do something. So, you know, Ethos starts stepping up and saying, okay, we're going to start closing hatches and trying to figure out where the leak is and are we going to go back in and patch it? Are we going to let the, the module go to vacuum because we don't want to put the crew back into danger once they're already safe? So a lot of those simulations go crazy and different flight directors want different things. So as an Ethos, you kind of have to be on your feet and ready to uh, deal with the problem and then deal with your boss, the flight director, and kind of whatever they want to do. And then the last one is a toxic atmosphere. 
and that's if the crew uh, breaks glass, we might press the toxic atmosphere button. But sort of the worst case scenario is we have water cooling the internal of the space station. We have ammonia cooling the external of the space station. And they interface at a heat exchanger. And if one of like the water were to freeze and expand and bust through that heat exchanger, the ammonia could come into the internal cooling system. Then if the pressure of the internal cooling system gets so high that it ruptures, all of a sudden you have ammonia hydroxide flowing into the cabin. And if the crew takes, you know, more than two breaths of that, they're not going to recover. So that's sort of the scariest thing is an ammonia leak where the crew rushes into the Russian segment and closes hatches and tries to make sure that they're safe and not going to uh, make the ultimate sacrifice. Right. Yeah, it was it was wild um, how you were saying that when whenever people work a shift in mission control, they only do it like once a week because it's an eight hour shift that you need to show up to and you need to be absolutely present for. It's not another day in the office. Like you're at that computer looking at every piece of data, monitoring constantly because it, it really is like it's a fragile flip of the coin between everything's good and then everything's it's time, you know, it's yeah. time to work. Or, yeah, you work like maybe three or four weeks a year and you would work like for a week, an eight hour shift of that week. So you work orbit one, which is noon to eight, orbit two which is like eight to four, then orbit three is four to midnight. And you would sleep shift for it and then again, you'd work it for about a week. And the idea is you don't want anyone going into mission control and putting their feet up on their desk and be like, all right, you know, another day at the office. Let me just get a donut and hang out. It's like, nope, you're here like monitoring a $150 billion vehicle with six lives <laughs> on board. Like we're not messing around here. That being said, I just want to note, we had a box of Shipley's in the control room. <laughs> we did. So I'm just going to good throw, enough for NASA. put my flag oh, in the sand. Good enough. <laughs> certified. It is good enough for NASA, NASA control NASA endorsed room. Shipley's. But that's cool. Yeah, yeah, you're essentially like the ER of of, uh, of NASA. Just trying to keep the crew alive and, and keep vehicle going. Yeah, <laughs> Putting out fires. That's yeah. a big part of it. Yes, sir. So I want to swing into now some of the more of just the topics of conversation that we'd kind of want to bring up um, with you, you here on the show. We've got some things that we want to talk about with space flight, uh, or I mean, private space flight versus public. We sure. have stuff based on that. And we have a bunch of questions as, as well. But Hunter, I know you had an article that you prepared. Yeah. So if you want to go ahead and bust into that. Cool. So mine is from, I think it's a Russian news agency called TASS. Uh, T-A-S-S. And so I brought up an article that I read, and it's titled, First Woman in Space Says Russians Will Be First on Mars. And uh, basically, this this lady named Valentina Tereshkova said on Monday, she be- or Monday, I don't know, around November 21st, that she believed Russians would be the first to land on Mars. She would have been ready to go to the Red Planet herself. It was not for her age. She says, quote, I believe that we'll be the first on Mars after all. Look, they're using sanctions against us, but Americans fly aboard our space vehicles with the help of our carrier rockets and are not going to create their own spaceships. So just to be concise there, I mean, I, or to stop it there, I'm kind of just wondering a lot of what we were talking about historically with NASA today was heavily influenced by the competition against Russia, you know? Sure. And so with, you know, the moon sort of being accomplished, we can say that, America won that one, right? What it, what do you, it, are we really gearing up for the next level of that with Mars? And what are your thoughts on the upcoming space race and the implications that that'll have? Um, you know, I'm sure there are several different levels of implications that it could have. Yeah, so it's kind of a double-edged coin. I think a lot of the motivation comes from competition, 
But at the same time, if we're not competing and we pool resources, it's way easier. Right. It doesn't cost too much for any one country to do these great things. It could possibly save lives, like you mentioned yeah. when we were in the tour. Yeah, yeah we had a, a Russian uh, cosmonaut die sort of for this faulty wiring, pure O2 environment that killed the Apollo 1 crew just a few weeks earlier. So if we were talking to the Roscosmos, then Apollo 1 astronauts Gus Grissom and Ed White and Roger Chaffee might still be around. So, yeah, a lack of communication is something that you don't ever want to support Especially right. in something where people are, you know, mm-hmm. in, in harm's way like they are in, in manned spaceflight. Um, first off, I just want to say, like, how many Russians have been on the moon? <laughs> I don't. I, I wouldn't know. Goose egg. Zero. 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 They've been focusing so hard on Mars this whole time. <laughs> now we know why. Yeah. Uh, it depends on who you talk to. I think some people at NASA are really Mars ho, you know, Mars gung ho. Uh, I think those are few and far between. I think our leadership at NASA is really Mars-driven, but that comes from, I think, the Obama administration. So uh, it, there's an issue with NASA's leadership in that every four years we get a new president, possibly, and then the president can just scrap whatever the previous administration was doing and then make their own goal. Hmm. So George W. said, hey, let's do the Constellation Project. Let's go back to the moon. Let's talk about a permanent moon base. We're doing a permanent base in low Earth orbit in the ISS, Let's iterate that. Let's do a permanent base on the moon. Let's make sure we can like get our all our ducks in a row before we start going to Mars. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Obama came up and said, "No, there's nothing else on the moon we want to know about. Let's we're going to Mars. That's what we're going to do." I said, "Okay." We just scrapped Constellation, scrapped all the work we did for it, and said, "Okay, we're going Mars. That's fine. That's what we'll start working on." So we start working towards Mars, and then Trump just put his new, uh, I think, space like expert to to make a plan for NASA. And they're saying, no, we don't want to go to like the, we don't go to Mars. That's lame. We're going to go to Europa. We want to go to a, a moon off of Jupiter. It's so like, okay, <laughs> so we'll God. just scrap yeah. this and we'll start <laughs> working on this. So it's just every four years, you know, it's, it it's, it's, doesn't make sense to me that NASA's goals, where it takes like a decade to really like get the technology proven as a proof of concept and get the astronauts trained, that's, you know, now we're might be scrapping Mars missions and start focusing on Europa, which is just, it's frustrating. Uh, because we don't have the resources to constantly be investing in technology that d- doesn't transition over. Right. Because moon bases are different than the ISS. It's different than what you would want for a Mars colony. That's different than what you want on like an ice world like Europa. They're just different. So every four years to, you know, to change that with limited resources is a, it's a bummer. And it sounds, with that answer, like the Russians have a leg up then. Because... They have a consistent administration in Putin, right? So, like, sure. they're going to be dead set. Like, once they really get their gears going and they have this in their sights, I mean, what's going to stop them, you know? I mean, if uh, they yeah. really want to claim it in that sense or whatever. I think there's a very, very small part of the reason the USSR collapsed was kind of going bankrupt due to the space race. Really? I think a very, very small part of it, but it was it's not negligible. Yeah, significant. So I, I would be it would be odd to me if Russia said, No, we don't want help, we're going to Mars by ourselves. That yeah. would make no sense to me from like a, a national perspective, just because like, why would you not want other brilliant engineers in other countries and their funds and their resources to help you do this? Yeah. You know, when we landed on the moon, it wasn't like America did this, it was we did this. People right. in India were mm-hmm. cheering when we landed on the moon, yeah. you know? It, it was a global thing. It was what our species was capable of. So right. to then start making that more of a nationalistic thing, I don't, I don't know. It, it, it rubs me the wrong way with my 18 months of NASA experience. Like, what mm-hmm. do I know? But 
intuitively it seems off. It seems like the wrong mentality. Although I like the competition, but it seems like we can get more uh, working together. It's like friendly competition is all we need, yeah. you know? More of the craft beer co-opetition <laughs> that we all re- f- regularly reference. Yeah. <laughs> to ask a, a simpler question, even dial it back a little bit, what, what about Mars besides the fact that it's another planet and it's also kind of the next planet out from us, but I honestly wonder why is everyone so determined now to get to Mars? Like, why sure. why is getting to Mars the best idea? Why is it the the next step? Why and and what are the possible alternatives besides going to a moon, like Europa? You know, like yeah. So again, I think it's who you talk to. I think certain people would say it's not the best step. Mm-hmm. And what know? would those people say it is? Um, probably like a permanent moon base. Yeah, iterate on the ISS. We've proven that we can conquer low Earth orbit. You know, we have a permanent manned presence in low Earth orbit since 2001. You know, it's been 15 plus years. We've had people in space. Right. So anyone younger than 15 has not known a time we have not had people in space. (laughs) So that's a really cool idea. So I think to iterate on that, maybe a permanent moon base. We can, you know, it's three days away. Mm -hmm. You know, ISS is about six hours. The moon is about three days. Mars is six months when it's right next to us. And is years when it's on the other side of the sun from us. So you want to go from a six-hour, like, oh, the auction generator broke? Oh, crap, we'll send you a spare part, to, oh, the, the auction generator broke? All right, we'll start writing a eulogy. Yeah. You know? Right. Like, that's what you want to iterate to? It makes no sense to me. So, uh, yeah, I think the next step would be you know, a moon base. But then when people start talking about, well, why even do any of this, you know? If you want to talk about the romantic side, about, like, humans are explorers, and we had Lewis and Clark, and why manifest destiny, and why, mm-hmm. like, explore the continent, and why did anyone sail to the new world, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. You could have, like, the romantic idea of, like, well, you we're humans, and, like, what is life about if not exploration? But then right. you can take the more, I think, pragmatic side of it and just say, as a species, we can't stay on Earth forever. Uh-huh. If it's 100 years, if it's 1,000 years, if it's 10,000 years, the planet is going to dis- be destroyed. It's going to be either a desert wasteland or the sun is going to take it over or nuclear warfare is going to take us out. At yep. some point, we can't stay here. Yeah. Yep. So I think to iterate on that and start saying, well, we have a base on the moon, we have a base on Mars, we have the technology to send people and colonies to other planets. Yeah. That's the first step to making sure our species lives beyond the planet that we were born on. Right. So that's what I would say. Is like That's why it's important pragmatically or you want the more romantic side of it. That There's a plethora of answers for the romantic side of it. So mm-hmm. I think you kind of pick your path or a little bit of both. And so, you know, you were kind of explaining that on the ISS, essentially, it's just PhD scientists up there who are doing experiments um, that aren't possible on when Earth's gravity. You were mentioning growing like ecologies of bacteria and viruses. Sure. And because you're in zero G, you're essentially able to make bigger versions of those so you can test like more medicine at the same time. Can you kind of uh, elaborate like what exactly is going on in the ISS and sort of why it is valuable uh, for for us as as a species to be pursuing these sorts of uh, goals. Yeah. Um, so the ISS is often thought of as like a cool, like almost in the same breath as like Saturn V and that kind of stuff. And I think that's incorrect. The ISS is a national laboratory. It right. is a platform for scientific experiments to be done in a microgravity environment. Mm-hmm. That's the purpose of it. So uh, astronaut time is at a premium we don't waste a cruise time with almost anything because any time that they are not doing science, that is time that the ISS and NASA program is losing money. Yep. We sell payloads to universities, to private companies, all kinds of people can buy astronaut time and buy space on the ISS, and we do science. A lot of that is medical in the way that you described. We just 
you know, on in a one G environment, these bacteria colonies can collapse under their own weight, but there's no like weight in microgravity. You're just in free fall. So right. you know, if you put a scale underneath it, the scale's going to reach zero no matter what, no matter how big it gets, no matter how much mass it has, there's no weight. So uh, that's really helpful because again, you get bigger colonies. You can study the effects of different drugs on different uh, bacteria cultures. And uh, God, I forget the disease, but we've doubled the life expectancy of a certain disease. I was reading about the other day. People were usually dying around 21, and now it's like 45 after the research came back from uh, ISS medical experiments. Yeah, that's dope. Yeah, that's incredible. So that's, <laughs> that's really cool, and a lot of like fluid dynamics and understanding how fluids behave at a, in a way that we can't test in a 1G environment. Right. Like maybe a lot of the side effects are negated by 1G, but uh, in microgravity, we can test them a lot better. So they're just doing science, man, do you day in, day out. Do you happen to know roundabout how much budget is spent on NASA per year? Like what that sort of, what, what it costs to run everything that's going on? So NASA's annual budget is a little bit under uh, one half of 1%. Do you know what the... The, the, the uh, federal like, budget, of, yeah, like the federal income. Do you budget. know what like a hard number is for that? I don't. You don't? No. I'm, I'm curious, and I want to ask you this question, um, because it's a question I've asked myself when I was studying um, like super impoverished people like in South Asia and stuff like that. When, it, when you talk about the money that's committed to research on this scale and of this, capa- uh, uh, this capacity, and we see that it's already helped our species in, in, in any number of like medical ways. How do you weigh the number that's spent um, on the NASA program against the, that same number if it was instead spent towards like uh, humanitarian aid and, sure. and that sort of thing? Like, where where do you um, come out on that? Because I sometimes would have just the very simplistic, blunt thought of why 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 spend our money going into space when we could be spending our money here and helping those like who need it, you know? And a quote when we were going through that that I took a picture of here, and this comes from Virgil uh, Grissom. Gus Grissom, yeah. Yeah, it says, uh, we are in a risky business, and we hope that if anything happens to us, it will not delay the program. The conquest of space is worth the risk of life. And I thought that was an incredibly uh, powerful uh, quote, especially knowing that that man ended up giving his life and dying in the program. So why... Why is going to space not only for this man worth the risk of life, but also um, worth the resources we we give to it? You know, sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, I won't pretend to speak for Gus Grissom and why. Sure. sure. <laughs> well, I knew Gus. What did personally. he mean? Yeah. <laughs> what was he talking about? Well, Granddad was always. A... Yeah, right? <laughs> um. Yeah, I think it's a fair point. I think you have a limited number of resources, and we have to, as a culture, decide where we want to spend those funds. Um. Yeah, I think NASA is a, a public domain um, organization, so we came up with a lot of different stuff, like smoke detectors. Oh, wow. That came out of NASA. NASA's going to develop these technologies for spaceflight, but NASA's not going to get into the business of selling smoke detectors at like yeah. Home Depot, right? So we just release it. <laughs> yeah. You just release the patents. Right. So uh, I think a lot of money that's invested into NASA develops into technology that then people can start selling, and it benefits the lives of people here on Earth. So I wouldn't say that money spent in spaceflight does not help mm-hmm. people on Earth. I don't think those two things are mutually exclusive. Yeah. Also, I think we should look at various problems and ask ourselves, will just more money fix it? Uh-huh. I think a lot of problems that we look at, you just throw money at it and nothing changes. Right. So I think that there are other things that, um, you know, different humanitarian aid projects that just more money isn't the answer. Sure. So I think those two things, 
those kind of three things where you we that's a fair point we should talk about where money is going and as a culture vote in people that are going to allocate the funds appropriately in the way that we believe and then I, I think that NASA helps people in that the technology that develops directly benefits uh, a lot of people on Earth. I think, I think probably everybody. Electronics, uh, computing power, all that stuff comes out of NASA's need for it. Sure. And then, again, NASA just releases the patents because well, what are we going to do with them? And then companies pick them up and we start getting a really cool technology. And then thirdly, with the problems that you want to put money towards, we should be focusing on the idea that money isn't period going to solve these problems and that maybe there are other things we could be working on that might even make a bigger benefit yeah. to uh, those problems. And I just know like even in the short time through the tour and all that you've educated us on, like it's already becoming so much more immediate, immediately apparent to me, like why what's going on is important. You know, I'm like, I mean, just standing in front of that Saturn V rocket, it just like, yeah. it was that, it was that simple of being like, Oh yeah, no, of course. We <laughs> yeah. You we know? have like, to do this. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Plus, yeah. I mean, you know, 0.5% of the budget, is for every dollar you give, you cut a penny in half. Yeah. You just kind of flip it over to NASA and see what they can do with and it. Say, you know? Hey, get us to Mars, I guess. Now? I mean, yeah, it's Mars now. It's well, Mars. Yeah, go to Mars yeah. now. <laughs> well, look, yeah, I want to transition now into talking a little bit of about private uh, space exploration and space travel. It's been a regular theme and occurrence on this show. You know, we try to do news articles around that wheelhouse. And we are knowingly ignorant about a lot of the things that we talk about, but we think it's cool. We have a fascination with Elon Musk. Yes. (laughs) Cult of Musk. (laughs) So I went, I found a Washington Post article and it was called Which Way to Space? And it was written about two years ago by Joel Achenbach. And it basically, and I I, um, implore whoever's listening to go check out this article because it was incredibly informative and it was very comprehensive. But it talks about who all the major private space uh, players are and kind of what they do and starts laying some of this stuff out. So I want to go through a little bit of an outline that I have. So there's SpaceX, which was founded in 2002 by Elon Musk. Um, it has sent un- the unmanned dragon to the International Space Station to deliver cargo. And it plans to strap three Falcon 9 cores together to create a Falcon Heavy that could heavy. Pe- yeah, potentially launch payloads to Mars. Virgin Galactic is a company that hopes to begin tourist flights. Yep. And then they talk about another one called Orbital, which was a Virginia-based company that specializes in the manufacturing and the launch of satellites. And they successfully pressurized a cargo capsule called Cygnus that was sent to the ISS. And they have a NASA contract for more cargo missions. They fly quite a few Cygnuses. It's not like a one-time thing. Orbital is a big partner. Okay, cool. Um, and so basically what the article was saying was that space companies need a NASA contracts, but NASA needs new space companies to pick up the slack that the agencies can't take on it and accomplish themselves. And some of the other things they talk about what private companies are working towards are robotic vehicles that can mine asteroids for precious metals, um, including gold and platinum. Uh, even sending packages through space could take like 30 minutes sure. instead of several days. Um and the tourism thing is also what really kind of stood out to me is, you know, like when we were sitting there standing looking at the ISS, I was sitting there like, fuck, I wish I could go to space, you know, and like through kind of some of these efforts, it's like, well, now if you got the money, guess yeah. what? You can, you know, mm-hmm. you can go right now if you have the money with $72 million for a Soyuz seat, the one that we saw. Yeah. 72 million. You, they'll put your ass paid in there. Paid over to the Roscosmos, paid over to the Ruskies. Jump on, man. God, that's unbelievable. <laughs> space dude. tourists. We've had them on the ISS before. Man. So we've had a growing, um, a growing influence of these private space companies. And I feel like it's kind of the first time that they've, we've really seen them. 
you know, what is the relationship between that and NASA? Like, what is the interaction between there, even on a basic level? Because I really have no idea, you know, like, how do you view it all? And what's the general attitude towards it? And where is it going? You know? Sure. Uh, yeah. Um, I think it's really exciting. I think uh, it's something that's neat when NASA comes out and says, well, if we want to launch our own vehicle to the ISS to resupply it with different parts, clothes, food, water, it's going to cost us this much, say $5 million. And SpaceX comes out and says, wait, whoa, whoa, give us a contract. We can do it for $3 million. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, a, that's a win-win. That's a no-brainer. no-brainer yeah. You give $3 yeah. million to SpaceX, now we have $2 million extra million to put towards what we want to do. <laughs> Especially with you have the you know, Obama administration saying go to Mars. You have possibly the Trump administration saying go to Europa. We can't stay in low-Earth orbit and do all of these things and develop the technology to go to far away and distant planets. Mm-hmm. So if right. we can give low-Earth orbit over to private companies, that would be amazing. That would be ideal, you know? <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the way that I think the relationship works is that NASA gets funds from the government and does a bunch of research and uh, gets gathers a bunch of data with different materials and all this kind of uh, scientific evidence for space flight, and then we use what we learn and then we release the rest and that's a bunch of um r&d that i think private companies can't take like spacex i don't think well maybe spacex could because elon musk is like amazing but other <laughs> private companies uh, might not be able to incur those research costs they can't figure out what material to use because they're going to go under before they you know make any money off of their research hmm. nasa's not going to go under mm-hmm. so nasa can do the research figure it out then we release the data and the private companies come in and say hey we can do what you want us to do for cheaper. So right. give us that money and then you keep your extra money and then go figure out what else you want to do. So yeah. I think it's very mutualistic. I don't think it's parasitic at all or all that competitive, if at all competitive. Right. It's symbiotic almost. Yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, do you feel like the private space um, presence or sector will at any point maybe grow past now, like overtake NASA? Like where, where do you think... Do you think government-based or just like public, the public institution of space travel is always going to be the prime mover in all this stuff? Or do you see a future where uh, private space flight and space exploration ends up taking over the mantle, you know? So I think I guess space is so big, there's probably room for everybody. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> but like, a good point. <laughs> NASA had the idea of an inflatable module. Like we have these giant steel canisters for the ISS, these different sort of Lego pieces, these pods. And we had the idea, well, like, steel's really heavy. Let's make it like a, a thin sort of Kevlar inflatable. That doesn't weigh anything. Let's just launch that. So we did a bunch of research, and we thought, well, we don't really know if we want to finish this. It's costing a lot of money. The new administration's coming in. We're just going to scrap this. We're going to release whatever we have to everybody, and then whatever. We're, we're moving on. Then a company called Bigelow said, well, that's actually a pretty good idea. So Bigelow took the research, developed an inflatable module, and then now is paying NASA to host their inflatable module. So right now, on the aft side of the Node 3 module, we have a Bigelow inflatable module, inflated, just hanging out there. So now you can imagine a private company saying, hey, inflatable modules work and are safe and are great. So now the ISS deorbits in 2024, 2028. Now NASA's going over to Mars, going over to Europa, and we have private companies saying like, dude, we can launch these huge space hotels because it doesn't cost anything. It's inflatable. It doesn't cost anything to launch this. We can have one rocket launch multiple inflatable modules. This is great. Yeah. And they build a giant space hotel because NASA had some sort of research, but we can't really figure out what we want to do with it. So Bigelow gets a proof of concept, and now Bigelow makes the Bigelow Space Hotel. Mm-hmm. And now it's space tourism. Yeah. And that overtakes NASA's space tourism because that's not what NASA's about. So sure. in that way, they would take the mantle for something space-related. Right. But I don't see like Bigelow 
beating us to like Alpha Centauri or anything like that, you yeah. know? Yeah, exactly. Well, so. now, I also wonder, like, NASA has to be like the final say so uh, as far as if, if you're going to have. I guess I'm wondering what are the governmental sort of like like putting your fist down and saying like we're letting you do this or we're not letting you. Can people just throw shit into space? I mean, no. <laughs> They're not allowed, not allowed to do that. So, <laughs> so how, shoot that, stuff how, how do they prevent it's that? It's not really, that easy. Um, that's a bit above my pay grade. Yeah, I think with regards to like how SpaceX gets permission from the U.S. government and maybe from NASA to launch things because mm-hmm. they built their own launch facility in South Texas. Right, and I don't know how much NASA gave them to do that or how much NASA had to say about that. I know you guys were talking about, you know, Bigelow, not Bigelow, SpaceX wants to do this new fueling method, right? Mm-hmm. They want to do this new fueling with this uh, super dense, super cold cryogenic fuel. And NASA came out and said, well, that's not a good idea to like fill a rocket when there's crew on board. Yeah. But I don't think, I'm not sure NASA can be like veto. Uh-huh. You can't do that. Right. I don't know about that. I'm not, I'm not hundred percent on that. Hmm. Cool. Um, well, is there anything else that we want to touch on before we start bopping over to questions and such? Oh man, I think we could bop it up. Yeah, well, let's say. let's question bop. Let's get to bopping. Let's sum let's sum up this beer. I feel okay. like we've uh, all gotten quite gone quite a bit through it. We're sitting at right about an hour. Yeah. So, what what do you guys feel about the wild sour? This thing it's not as disagreeable as I thought it was going to be. Um when it was cold and we first tried it, it was already like showing its colors, which usually means like once yeah. it warms up, it's going to be a beast. Mm-hmm. And I think this thing is definitely a beast. There's a lot to handle here. Um, but I think this is kind of like a one-time only gimmicky type <laughs> of beer, you know, where it's really? like, I don't see myself cracking up. Like, I don't want another one of these. You know what I mean? Yeah. Interesting. I'm kind of happy that I have tried it, mm-hmm. but I'm not ready to be like, um, I like sours this much because this thing is, <laughs> it's just like vinegar and like deep citrus, and yeah. I'm not really getting too much salt. I guess I can get a little bit of like coriander, as they claim. Um, but it's it's nothing that's gross, but it's also something that I feel like I'm having to like rise up to. Sift you know? through. Yeah. Oh, I feel like I mean, it is hitting my stomach. I feel like after yes. you drink yep. it for a while, you're just like, ooh. <laughs> um, I mean, I appreciate the sourness. I like sour things. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is bold. I think that there is like a saltiness at the end of it, which is kind of nice. That right. faint of mellowing it out just a little bit. But every sip, just you can feel it go all the way down. You know? <laughs> so Unique is a good way to describe it. <laughs> yeah. And I get, I get a lot of saltiness too, actually. But, um, but yeah, lemon, lime, you know, just, just very tart yeah, uh, tasting. And, and I'm surprised because sours are not my types of beers. And mm-hmm. um, I've had other, I've had one other uh, from this wild sour series. Okay. Uh, it was in a yellow can. I don't know exactly what it was, but it was, I like this one more than that one. Like, really? I think this one is more agreeable in that, um, in fact, whenever it was cold, I felt like it was like a biting sour. Whereas uh-huh. like now that it's, now that it's opened up a little bit, I do feel a little bit like it's mellowed out. Um, but yeah, I guess it's, I like it for sours. I've had other Berliner Weisses that I don't like. It's really? weirdly sour and I don't like it. Uh-huh. Uh, but this one's good. I think it has, I think, you know, it, I say it a lot, but I think they nailed what they were going for. So I, I, I agree with it in that sense. Spaceman Max. 
How you feel about it? And only use space terminology as you <laughs> yeah. it. took me to the four moon. Four and they must yeah, be I was say, by a sophomore. Make sure yeah, sophomore can understand it. Um, you know, this beer is really straightforward. <laughs> the big middle Got finger. Him, uh, yeah. feels good now. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, first taste is sour, and then it sort of mellows into a sweetness, and then I get a little bit of salt on the back end. Um, yeah, I'm getting the gurgles. Yeah. I'm getting the, the stomach gurgles with with Max over there, so yeah. I, I agree with that. It's a Max thing. Probably not going to finish this guy just because. Yeah, it's, it's, we can, you can sense it. Um, yeah, it's really tart. I get kind of a, more of a fruit vibe from it than I was expecting. I'm tasting it almost tastes like it's kind of citrusy with berries. Mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. the only one getting that, but I'm getting it's kind of the sweetness is almost like a fruit sweetness. Um, yeah, it's good, but I'm I'm with Chase. I don't think I'll be uh, getting a six pack of this anytime soon. I do think that if you're able to find enjoyment in this beer, though, that then you're ready to find enjoyment in almost any sour. It's yeah, like these, sure. these, it's like really propping up the aspects of what makes a sour beer a sour beer. So if you can kind of wade through that, then you're set. But, yeah, if you appreciate those aspects of this beer, you should appreciate <laughs> all sour beers. Going forward. Yeah. Um, well, all right, let's take a quick break. We'll have a little halftime. We'll come back. All right, sounds good. If you want to follow the show once the mics have turned off, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Witty Banter Show. Also, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Witty Banter Podcast and help the show get discovered by leaving a review on iTunes. And finally, steer the conversation by sending a question to Witty Banter Show at gmail.com or suggest a beer for us to review by going to our website, wittybantershow.com. That's enough plugs. Let's get back to the show. There it is. There, yeah. Nice. You call it. Max nice calls him when he sees him, you know. When he sees a good boy, he's like, yeah, that's yeah. good. That's <laughs> what I like. You Normal Max, that is. No. Spaceman Max yeah. is a guest. <laughs> uh, we're on to our second beer. Hunter, what are we drinking? So we're going we're gonna to transition from the sour beer. Take a hard left turn here. Yeah, hard left turn to a nice chocolatey beer, right? This is a Russian Imperial Stout uh, called Legion by Community Beer Company. Who we had on the show. Yeah, who we had Mm -hmm. on... We got to interview. So it was pretty dope. Uh, This is a 9.9% alcohol by volume. And you can tell. Just gotta, just gotta say, you know, I mean, they have all the stuff right here, so I'm very happy about their advertising. They have uh, 9.9% alcohol by volume, 70 IBUs, um, and they say, please feel free to enjoy this beer fresh or cellar aged for up to three years. So that's a nice little uh, serving note. But as far as the beer goes, it says hallmarks of the style are rich maltiness from the massive grain bill, deep roast, and chocolate character from highly kilned malts, all balanced. By an elevated bitterness, hop flavor, and alcohol content. So, I think we're going to be trying, you know, a nice little chocolatey, Why? sweet, bitter beer. Why can you age some beers? Like, because my beers go bad. Like, beers I've had, like, I've drank them and been like, oh, they expired six months after. So, what about this beer makes it not expire? I think it has to do with the alcohol content. I think beers with larger alcohol contents can last longer, Definitely. and that alcohol will mellow out more as the uh, time goes as on. time goes on. Yeah, I'm, the I'm history right. of IPAs, right? Uh huh. They're coming across the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and I think um, you know, not only were they more alcoholic, but those all the the bittering was in there was to preserve the beer, right. so they can make long treks. Yeah. Interesting. 
But I just had a sip of this one. You can taste that 9.9%. This yeah. beer's warm. Like, it warms my mouth. Beer. Yeah, like, it, it's got a warm alcoholic sort of feel to it. It also might be because of those deep fire roasted malts. Like, there might be some rye or something in there as well, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. But... Whenever I hear a chocolate in the description of a beer, I'm immediately like, okay, is this going to be like chocolate syrup and therefore feel cheap and sweet? Or is it going to be like those those dark, Cocoa. bitter, yeah, like 85% coconut nibs, you know? <laughs> Cocoa nibs. Uh, <laughs> shut the hell up. Uh, so what do, you, what do you guys think about it so far? I think exactly that, man. It's, it's that like super bitter chocolate taste in there. Yeah, you know, there's nothing like. I mean, seventy IBUs is nothing to sneeze at, man. Oh no, no. Yeah, especially no. for a beer like this, I think. Mm-hmm. You like when you're talking about rye, there's almost like a weediness in there too. Mm-hmm. You know, which is kind of cool. Uh, not nearly as like sweet as I thought it was going to be. Not like I don't know if it's just like a different kind of smoothness that I anticipated, but I don't see it as smooth. But I'm also getting you know taken aback by like how much alcoholic content is in here. How hot it is how much of a like the mouthfeel doesn't feel velvety as much as it felt warm hot yeah i I wonder i think this is going to be one of those beers where there's a a, only a few traits and flavor profiles but they're so big that like really wrestling with them all and seeing like if they can end up balancing each other out is going to be the real tell you know yeah Yeah, i think for like i agree with you that um it might have said something about like a velvety smooth mouthfeel but it really isn't. It doesn't uh, carry itself that way whenever I whenever I drink it. And at the beginning, it's it's as though it's going to be that way. It has kind of like a soft intro into the the, the taste profile, but then it just explodes with like bitterness and hotness and alcohol. So um, I like it, but and it's reminiscent of most Russian imperial stouts, particularly Russian imperial stouts mm-hmm. um, that I've had. But it is, it's bold, man. It's, it's a bold, bitter, uh, you know, dark beer. So I can dig it. How's the spaceman feeling? Yeah. I, I hate to keep um, the whole review in an echo chamber, but uh, yeah, I think the first <laughs> sip you're going to get, I get the velvet. I understand what they're talking about with the very first sip. And then, uh, yeah, you get the whole warmth, the whole mouth sort of uh, warms up with the, uh, the alcohol. Man, this is like a top five beer I've ever had. Wow. No, right shit. up my alley. Good job, This man. is perfect. I wonder which beer is going to win. This is so good. He didn't tell it's, you, but that Wild thick. Star was number it's, two. You know, you don't feel like you're getting gypped out of anything. Mm-hmm. You get the full maltiness of like a good stout. It tastes like a Russian stout, like an old Rasputin, but yeah. it's not as bitter and it's not as foreboding as like an old Rasputin. It's got a little chocolate in there and you can taste it and you're aware of it. Man, this is a uh, this is solid. Yeah, and it's we'll super it it's super dark. The head was brown. Like yeah. this thing means fucking business. Khaki yeah. is too bright of a color <laughs> to describe the head of this beer. <laughs> well, uh, Spaceman Max, the witty banter audience was stoked to have you on, and they sent a treasure trove of questions oh, for man. us to answer. So we're gonna go ahead and jump go. jump right into those. We're gonna pick up where we left off with Alex Van Aken and his wife, and the second part of her question was. In your opinion, what is the single most important result of NASA's existence? Single most important result of NASA's existence. Yeah, chew on that a bit. How bitter is that uh, one, huh? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you could, I think you could do concrete accomplishments, like getting human beings off the planet mm-hmm. to survive and come back, mm-hmm. I think is very important. But I, I think most important would be more of a cultural victory 
in that people are inspired to continue studying. I think people uh, remember certain moments in their life that they sort of never forget and bring up. And I think where you were during the moon landing was one of those events for people who were alive in 1969. So I think... Can you imagine being on your television that night? Yeah. You know, like the moment of singularity. <laughs> Go outside across. and look up and be like, yeah, there are people up there. Yeah, that'd be amazing. So yeah, I would say the most important would be that, would be inspiring uh, engineers and scientists and people to be curious and be hungry right. and not just sort of be like, oh, I'm just going to do whatever because there's nothing really for me to do. It's like, no, you can be inspired by beautiful things like physics and by space. So I think that would be, I think, the most important one. Cool. Yeah. Um, so... Alex's question that he asked for, for you. He says, <laughs> I'd like to know your general thoughts on alien life and what they and what you believe our first encounter will be like. How will the world react when that info becomes public? Yeah, so this is going to wrap up into what I wanted to talk about with the show. If I could have like one thing I wanted to bring up that I never really wrote in about. All right, let's hear There's it. There's no love for aliens on this show. Yeah. And it needs <laughs> to change. There's I love no aliens. love. No. Every time it gets brought up. It's, oh, dude, we should not be talking to them. They're going to come over here. They're going to kill us. They're going to enslave our women. They're going to kill all the people. Do not talk to aliens. I hate yeah, them. If you see an alien, I just see look them. the other way. Walk right I'm gonna, by. Them. I, Give I mean, a swift kick to the jaw. We might have had a couple instances of that. I think alien communication would be cool. It would be scary as crap. Yeah, we, I th- yeah okay. I thought but, it was like three for three for like, do not talk to aliens. <laughs> <laughs> do not do anything that might get an alien to Earth. And that's going to be my thing. We're like, dude, I am not as negative or pessimistic about the idea of contact. Yeah. So that's going to be sort of my bringing that up. And maybe you guys could either clarify or double down. I'm like, nope, alien communication is poor. And then we could sort of maybe open up that can of worms. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, the only thing that I ever hear, and like, I will say that what fascin- aliens fascinate me in the sense that I'm also the guy who will sit on the internet and read alien abduction stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Not because I necessarily think they're true, but just because like from a narrative perspective, yeah. I think they're terrifying. Mm-hmm. And like, I'll read them for like a thrilling type of thing. But the basic consensus I hear around most people who talk about like who really like to get deep in the nitty gritty of space talk and talking about aliens is that if they have the technology to come over here and reach us, then they're so far advanced. And then what, what are they, even when we talked with Ahmed where it's like animal, like there is no morality between like us and animals. Yeah. There's no interspecies like like, like absolutely. Totally disagree. You, You think so? It's as a whole species, as human beings. Yeah, no, there's. Imagine if, like, outside you just saw a woman like beating a dog, just like mercilessly beating a dog. A lot of people don't think twice well, about that. That's also very I like do. that's a, I love dogs. yeah, absolutely. And I think no, you're right. People would be like, dude, what the fuck? That's so messed up. But that's not like the global scale that humans have taken in their approach to like animals. And also, dogs are considered like companions. And are a very small portion of how we treat animals yeah, that's fair. as a yeah human race for sure. Yeah, I mean we you know we we take out animals left and right, man. Well, I think <laughs> as our culture develops and we become more civilized, I think our interpretation of animals' role in our lives changes. So I think if you were the be the person to have sort of the first contact, uh, I think it's very important that you don't panic, that you don't scream, you don't rush the alien, you don't try to punch the alien. Because, you know, I think we make a lot of generalities with other animals, with pigs and cows. They're sort of, generally, they behave this way. Mm-hmm. So if alien doesn't have a generalities about our species and then you freak out, then they might make a decision, oh, yeah, humans are not intelligent. Right. So I think it's important to, if you were to be the first person to see aliens, get a stick, uh, walk over to them very calmly, and maybe, like, draw a triangle in the dirt 
draw like dot and dot and like four dots, do like Fibonacci sequence, yeah. like show the that universal like, we stuff, draw yeah. circles, like things that the human like aliens would be like, oh yeah, there's like geometry is a universal truth. It isn't something that they wouldn't understand, like a triangle. Yeah. They might not call it a triangle, but they would understand the shape of a triangle. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to make that first establishment. That being said, I think, again, as our society progresses and we become more civilized, we treat animals with kinder and kinder care. So I think that, you know, imagine if a farmer were to have, you know, go up to a pig and the pig sort of like draws a circle or like starts adding things together. You would I never wouldn't eat, eat another pig. That's the one you would pick. Yeah. That would <laughs> make him my personal slave. Taste <laughs> so that would be another point. It's like, so if aliens do reach us, like what, what do they need? Mm-hmm. Like if they, ha- they can get from Alpha Centauri to us, they don't need energy. They probably don't need water. You know, they can probably make their own water. Mm-hmm. Like what do they need from us? But that, I think that's what's so scary is like they don't necessarily need anything from us. They could be just on the conquest of, you know, exploration. But uh, I would think that once a civilization reaches level two, level three civilizations, really your only thing is like us. Like, it could be inner community help, but I would think that it would be like, you have come from the dirt and you have made this huge civilization that is consuming resources from different planets. And so I would think that, you know, other people would just be un, uh, not good casualties of their existence. Like, you or me, it's going to be me kind of thing. Sure, I, I don't think that's fair. I just think that. You hate to be so anthropocentric about it, but we only have one model of an intelligent civilization. And the pattern (laughs) seems to be that as we become more intelligent and more civilized, we are less violent and less cruel to other animals. Right. That sort of seems to be the pattern. So if the pattern progresses, then you would see an alien species that has the ability to go intergalactic. Mm -hmm. That would be such a civilized uh, society that I think their morality would also be very civilized. Yeah. So I'm, I'm less inclined to think immediate conquest, death of all humans. Although, it's a good point. Do you roll the dice? Do you really want to figure that out, if that's yeah. true or not? Do you just play the safe know. bet on that one? <laughs> yeah. Uh, to, to answer the second part of his question, though, what do you think, What the, like, how would the general public receive the information? I really think that if officials came out on television tomorrow and said, here's the deal, this has been going on for about a couple of years, now we're ready to tell you all that we have met aliens and they exist... I have a, I, it feels like to me there would be a general meltdown of yeah. most people. Like yeah. reality would cave in for a lot of people. The immediate realization that all human-made religion is wrong. Yep. Period. Yep. Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism, completely incorrect. Mm-hmm. Would be the first like immediate punch to the gut, I think. For most people, well, maybe God made the aliens. <laughs> yeah. oh, in God the humans' the image, yeah, he to wanted come us to find the aliens, and yeah. we're going to give them Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is, yeah. So I think that would be the first sort of gut punch. Um, yeah, man, that's that's a tough one. Yeah, that's, I don't think we're ready to, to hear that I think, yet. Like uh, we, as a as a civilization, you know. Yeah, I think we need like a buffer. I think we need to come across like animalistic alien life you know what i mean like discover bacteria or something mm-hmm. and then maybe discover like a space cat we need to face yeah like, like oh these are adorable space cats they're no threat to us but hey there could be other oh, oh, a space person hey yeah, like, yeah. Whoa, no, that's pretty okay, cool right. space dogs okay. too oh. <laughs> space dogs all right this next question comes from the show runner dunter horset okay who's got a nasa question mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
He says, my question was inspired by NASA's recent use of crowdsourcing in order to get ideas on how to help astronauts poop in space. He says, currently during the take of and re- the takeoff and reentry into the atmosphere, the astronauts have to wear diapers as they cannot leave their seats for several hours to several days. And they said the person with the best idea could win $300,000 or $30,000. And so his question is, as scientists can't figure out how to do something pretty basic, how to do some pretty basic things in space, I'm sure there are other things that are still awkward for space ventures. So what do you think would be the most complicated or awkward thing for you to do in space? <laughs> so first of all, is that true that they, they got to wear diapers? Uh, yeah, you have the option. During launch, yeah. you're gonna hold it or what, dude? You I want mean, the diaper. Hey, you're you want your not diaper, going right? to soil yourself. Astronauts just don't do that. They would just hold it. I think because yeah. <laughs> um, they've got so much pride. You can have a diaper, <laughs> or you can put on sort of like a, a one-way ca- uh, condom. Okay, you sort of roll For it over, and then you urinate a one-way. No, you just wouldn't defecate you during launch. You can't run big some cool astronauts I, in there. I'm sure I would. I would think I would be wrong if I would say no one has during launch defecated yeah. but i would just say uh i think the focus would be on urination and that's sort of like you wear the diaper for a one-time use of urination or you can wear like a condom with a one-way valve in it mm-hmm. that you can urinate through and it won't backflow yeah i mean as far as yeah defecation that would be nice but that's a good how do you do it like how do you cheaply do that right i mean we were talking about how like astronauts when they come home will just start like dropping things on the ground because they want to put them behind them in, in suspended air you know yeah so I'm trying to think about just like really awkward. I don't think I would be able to get a good night's rest in zero G. Like I have to sleep on my stomach and I've got to be in like such a particular space yeah. that like just sitting there like, all right, I'm going to strap myself in and okay, go to sleep now. You know, like <laughs> I think it's actually, there's, there's two ways to think about that one. It's that you're actually, the reason I think you don't get comfortable in bed is because you know, when you're standing up, all of your body stress is on very pinpoints of your feet. When you sit down, your body's weight is sort of uh, along your legs, so you kind of like there's more area for the the force to be on. When you lay down, that's the the least amount of stress on any given point of your body. That's why right. you're laying down. In microgravity, there's no stress on any part of your body. You're you can't be man. not comfortable because there's no uncomfortable parts of you. you there's nothing. One. There's no forces on you. Yeah. The issue is there's also not the ritual of going to sleep. You're right. always there's always no stress on you. Uh-huh. So you just go into a room and turn off the light. There's no like getting in your covers. Yeah, see, that's the what light I'm saying. Out, yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. I think the act is pretty important. The ritual act of getting into the bed. I don't know. I think um, I feel like you know. I think going to the bathroom would be tough. Uh, I think I think like doing workouts that didn't feel like you were just digging dirt, kind of. You know, like like running and moving objects and stuff, and just like trying to keep fit. Or just being bored, basically, with yeah, it. Yeah. Well, it's just like. I feel like it would just be so different. You'd have to you have to tend to it in such a different way than we would do it on Earth, and maybe not like awkward, but just like go out of your way to make sure that you're doing this stuff right because it's going to be so much different, you know. Hmm. Well, the question was like, what's the most awkward thing? To what do you do? think would be the most awkward thing to do in zero G? The most awkward thing to do day to day task in zero G. I'm sure Max Spaceman Max has the answer, but <laughs> yeah, I know. I was thinking of like. Things that involve liquid that I don't realize, like brushing my teeth or something, has got to be weird. 
Like yeah, anything that you might need flowing water for, yeah, is you like know. you can't do it. Also, just like once the saliva and toothpaste is all in my mouth, and it's just all wiggling around, <laughs> and I just I'm trying to spit it in the sink, and it goes right back into my face. <laughs> yeah, you, know? you can either swallow the toothpaste because you're only up there for six months, so it's not that bad for you, or you can spit it into a towel. Most astronauts just swallow it. Really? You really? just brush your teeth and swallow it. It's wow. a, it's high fluoride. Don't do it for years and years, but for six months, it's not a big deal. <laughs> there you go. Interesting. Solved. <laughs> Go on to space. Just swallow it up. All right. Thank you for the question, Dunter. This one comes from Eduardo Santana. Mm. He's got a question for us. Okay, Eduardo. It says, howdy, banterers. He says, I got a topic I'd like you to ask the spaceman you'll be interviewing. He says, space food. I don't even know where to start. Do they just rehydrate food? Do they go full Star Wars slash Back to the Future and have a magic microwave and space shuttles? Enlighten me, please. Yeah, what do you got here? Talking about some space food. I got some space Cheerios. No shit. So we can pass these guys around. You can see that on the front, it's pretty much like a, it looks like a bag of Honey Nut Cheerios. Yeah. But it's dehydrated and it's vacuum sealed. So it's hard as a brick. And you can see on the back is a lot of powdered milk. So what Mm. you would do is you would connect. So there's sort of like a, a straw that comes into this vacuum sealed package of Cheerios it almost looks like a Ziploc bag at the very top. Mm-hmm. So it is, you would puncture this straw into what we call the PWD, the potable water dispenser. You'd have some water come right through this straw, and the water would rehydrate your Cheerios, and the water would mix with the powdered milk. Then you would uh, rip it, kind of tear this top seal off, and that would open up the package. You can now put a spoon in there and try to mix it up, and then you would try to eat it before it sort of... Uh, Escapes. All floats away. Escapes away. So you can get a feel for that and kind of what vacuum-sealed, dehydrated Cheerios. Really is hard. And that's yeah. basically how all the food comes. Yeah, it's all going to be dehydrated bags. so it doesn't mold, it doesn't go bad. And then you would just add some water, mix it up, and eat it. So we have uh, steaks, turkey, you got cheeseburgers, you know, we get a lot of protein bars, you got Cheerios, obviously, eggs. So the food's not that bad. It's also not great. Right. Just because you know, have to rehydrate it. I mean, uh-huh. it's not like, you know, ideal but the kind of the craziest thing about food is that when crews get up to the ISS, the fluids shift from your legs and your stomach and from your kind of your stomach and your chest into your sort of upper chest and head. So you get a really puffy face and your sinuses fill up with fluid because <laughs> there's no gravity kind of pulling them out. So uh-huh. your that taste sucks. change. It's like you're eating with a stuffy nose. Oh, so, Hunter, you're set, man. Yeah, There's man. No Sounds like I'm yeah, a perfect for astronaut. Been prepped for a while, man. <laughs> so, a lot of astronauts, before they launch, they have sort of like a food lab testing where they eat a lot of different foods and say, I like this, I don't like this, launch more of this. And pretty much everybody uh, just ups the spice like two or three increments. Right. Because Give me something. Astronauts want the spice when they're up there. Even if they're on the ground, they're saying, like, yeah, it's too spicy for me. Yeah. They just launch it anyway. Right. Because when you have stuffy <laughs> nose, you're going to want to taste something. Yeah. So they, yeah. Have a, they have a dish called the shrimp cocktail. That's a favorite of the astronauts because it's more spicy and you know, nice. astronauts so you, seem to like that. On the Ethos team, you say you get to participate in a taste test for food that goes up, right? Yeah, so it's not uh, Ethos specific. It's more like a, a letter that goes out that I've signed up to be a part of the team. Oh, I see. And they just say, hey, we're testing out um, you know, collard greens in a protein bar. Come on by. So I sign up for like 9 a.m. on Tuesday and I walk in there and they kind of have this... Uh, really well-controlled experiment where like, I don't even see the person giving me the food. Mm-hmm. Like, it's like a kind of a tray that they put food in and then they open it and close their end and I take the tray out and then I eat it and I they have a kind of a laptop right next to you and you just type in your notes, what do you like, what you don't like, 
give it a rating zero to ten on these you know, taste, aroma, color. <laughs> it's so interesting. And then you just launch it, and then you get going back to your back to your work. That's fun. <laughs> and then I'm a food blogger on space food. <laughs> Yo, dude, that'd be I'm a dope, man. Like a restaurant based completely around space food. <laughs> Rehydrated. I, um, I was also gonna ask you this, like with the with like once astronauts get up there, are you guys also monitoring like their nutrition and making sure that they're fed a, cause you, you control like what they eat and everything and what sure. they get. So do you basically have like a list of these vitamins that they, like every astronaut needs to get this many of, uh, they, how, how do you do nutrition for these, these people? Uh, yeah, that would be more in the wheelhouse of a, a console called surgeon. Mm-hmm. They sort of mm-hmm. do medical stuff. I'm more like just life support. Like they have oxygen. Okay. Right, my yeah. job's done. Yeah. You know, Whereas a surgeon might <laughs> no say fires. like, what did they eat? What did they eat in the last week? Uh-huh. Is it really salty? Do they need like a lower salt diet? Maybe yeah. in this next week. Uh, yeah, what are they eating? Do they have enough iron? Because I'm just vitamins? wondering, like, I mean, I know I willfully eat unhealthily sometimes. I'm, can the astronauts willfully be unhealthy? Or is it like once you're up there, it's like, sorry, you got to eat like a spaceman and <laughs> get, your, get your nutrients. And then uh, yeah, I think that they get to pick. But uh, one of the issues that we run into is, like, you know, like on Earth, we don't drink distilled water. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you go to get the water store, you don't. The water store that everyone goes to. You wouldn't buy distilled water, and that's because there are no minerals in it. It's just pure hydrogen and oxygen mixed together in a liquid form. Like, there's no salts in it. So, like, the water in your body has a homeostasis. It's not just pure water. It's water and a little bit of salt. And that your body likes a certain homeostasis of water and salt mixture. So if you just drink distilled water, you're going to flush your body of all the salts and your body won't be able to perform it at the level that it's supposed to. Gotcha. So the water that they drink on board is uh, through what we call the UPA and the WPA, the urine processor and the water processor. So uh, it's, I mean, it really is like hydrogen and oxygen. I mean, it's very like pure water. So uh, they do drink a high salt diet to counteract the lack of salt in their water. Interesting. That's kind of one sort of dietary point that I've picked up on. But yeah, as far as vitamins yeah. and that kind of stuff, I'm not, I'm not privy to it. Nice. Uh, this next question comes from Brian. He says, how do you want to leave your mark on science? What do you want to accomplish before dying? Hmm. I'm guessing this is to Max. That's for maybe, Spaceman maybe, Max. Maybe, maybe, yeah. Everybody. Yeah. 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 Well, let me tell you. <laughs> leave my mark on science. Mm-hmm. Any grandiose aspirations? Uh, yeah, I think some people work at NASA as sort of a patriotic idea of like kind of serving country. I think I, it's more of like a humanity kind of thing. Like I just like manned spaceflight, and so I'm trying to help my species in, in any way that I can, and I think this might be the best way that I know how to do it. Uh, my mark on science, I'm not sure I'll have much of a mark in that I'm not researching or I'm not producing new results. I think I am a cog in a machine that is allowing science to occur on the International Space Station. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think in that way, like, I don't think I'll ever be an astronaut. So uh, I can play my part to allow science to occur mm-hmm. and hopefully, you know, in, in a selfless way in that, in that light that I won't ever have my name in a history book or anything like that. But I'll have the ability to at least know that I helped and that I, you know, did it right. Right. Um, what would I do before I die? I think my bucket list is very short. It's probably only one thing on it right now, and that is to experience microgravity. Yeah. So kind of space hotel would be cool. Uh-huh. They have zero G flights, but it's five thousand dollars per person. Well, yeah, so good. I don't have that. You know, <laughs> coming like coming down the pipe. Around. Yeah, you get. Oh, <laughs> I would. I would hope so. NASA does do zero G flights for like new hardware. Like they certify a new water processor by going on these zero G parabolic flights to simulate right. microgravity. But uh, you know, you have to be part of the engineering directorate to knock that out. So I haven't had the chance to do it yet. So I'd like to do that. Hmm. I think private cool companies could make that happen yeah. in my sure. lifetime. Yeah, cool. A lot of streams. What about you guys? Do you have a bucket list stuff? 
My bucket list is to be on the stage at E3 to give a, to give an E3 presentation. Oh, really? Yeah, that's sure. Sort of, that's sort of my goal. Cool. That's yeah. cool. I had never heard that. Yeah. Um, see, I don't think I have any any real like occupational. Mm-hmm. Go- goals. I don't. I have a pretty vague vision of my I occupation. I want to find wild. fraud. <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, I, I do. I do have aspirations of like having. There's just like a, a faint vision of being on stage mm-hmm. and performing to a just a sea of people. Yeah, like that. Just that would do it for me. You yeah, know? it's That's awesome. very cool. Yeah. No, I would want to uh, open up a space food restaurant. <laughs> I mean, maybe. He used to be a tattoo. Yeah, a tattoo vision where it was Ink Ink, right? Ink Ink. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Ink Incorporated. That's, That's right. Yeah. Nobody stole go that. Yeah. We got to go trademark it after we record <laughs> yeah, this. Yeah, for sure. No, they've they've changed a lot, um, dude. I don't know. Uh, I would really like to design the perfect fighting game. And yeah. then have it be just the number one. Yeah, we've discussed that. Yeah, per, yeah. Everybody's already got. Me and Max want to make an anime too before we die. I think oh, that dude, was kind of a bucket actually, list thing. Is like, that is I, absolutely one. To it has be to involved get <laughs> in the per, yeah in okay. that anime too. As well, Do you think so. you have the ability to make the perfect fighting game? Do you have the experience and the the wherewithal? So I think I do. Um, I think I have the understanding of what is needed for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also just think that like. Having a close connection with your community is also very important too, as well. Yeah, the people playing your game and figuring that out. Mm-hmm. I think I have some good ideas, but just a lot of things that I would like to test out and see if they would work out as well. Love cool. Idea, nice. All right. This next question comes from Ben Ebig, a nice. regular supporter yeah. of Witty Banter. He says, and this is for you, Spaceman Max. As a man of science, do you think facts still carry the same weight as they did ten or fifteen years ago? Uh, in the scientific community or in the political yeah, it depends community? Depends on who you're talking to. <laughs> I, d- I don't know. The answer is yes and no, yeah. respectively. <laughs> yeah, he didn't really specify, but I'd imagine that he wrote the question probably because of the latter. Yeah. Um, so I think in the scientific community, I think there's always been good um, peer review and uh, a healthy skepticism. I think in the political community, that's maybe fallen off recently, like healthy skepticism. Mm-hmm. But... Um, you know, we'll see. We'll yeah. see how that's going to go. For sure. Um, this one comes from Jamie Saul, and he says, and we've kind of touched on the first part, but the second one's new. He says, why do you do what you do, and what keeps you going on the bad days? So I'd be interested to see from you what a bad day at work is like. Oh, dude, plenty of them. <laughs> yeah, every day. <laughs> yeah, dude, simulations, dude, are brutal. Yeah. How long do they last? Uh, four hours. Nice. So it's a one-hour pre-brief, four-hour sim, and one-hour debrief. Wow. That's a chunk. Yeah, and you have what we call role play flight directors. So I'll have flight directors in my next um, sort of section of my training, as we call integrated simulations, and that'll be with a full team, with a real flight director, and we're simulating as a team. Uh, I've just finished my mini sim flow, which is the core disciplines, which is Ethos, Spartan, Cronus, Atco, and a role play flight director. But the role play flight directors are like people who came up through Ethos and were specialists and are now like promoted out of specialist realm. So like these are really brilliant flight controllers that are role play flight directors. And they know it's a training environment, so they uh, purposefully ask you uh, sort of almost trick questions 
and they try to sort of trip you up during the simulation to sort of make you say something that isn't true right. or to mm. sort of like show you like the importance of communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, we've had a few sort of simulations where, you know, it's during an emergency and I know what I want to do and the flight director purposefully and willfully says like, no, I disagree. I don't think we should do that. Like convince me. Right. And then like I'm trying to convince him and as I'm trying to do that, like the situation gets worse. Yeah. And it's like, I don't, I don't know the words that you want me to say. Sure. You know what I mean? So we've had bad days and like debriefs of like, you blew that. You're right. If that was real time, that would be horrible. Bear's given that a second go. Excellent. Dude, Thank you, Bear. That's incredible. That's that's a second dog, urination. Hey. You keep letting him drink, he's going to keep on spraying, That's what I'm man. saying, dude. That's, that's so much, too. Like, it's, it's not a robot. Dude. He's not marking. He's got an impressive point. Like, he's relieving himself. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like, it's still going. That's leaders. Bear, We're talking leaders. <laughs> Your dog God, damn it, dude. He's oh, still going. <laughs> is he broken? We're just going to sit here. Yeah, is he, he is. broken? Well, he's house broken and he's broken as it is both okay and we're back the uh, the dog the dog pp is is in the trash trash two for two <laughs> yeah two for two <laughs> yeah, most out. of it i think well, we were talking about uh, what bad days look look like for you i think you were finishing up your thought there yeah yeah just talking about different debriefs and when you think you're doing the right thing and you're just kind of going rogue, and you get feedback that's your uh, discipline is not where it needs to be to be certified. And you, you know, you spend your entire day reading and studying the systems and learning about different failures and what you would do, and sort of mentally going through what you would do in a certain failure situation. And then you, you know, it's time to perform, and you have um, different ethos people listening to you and watching you, and then you have ethos instructors, sort of like the next level up, watching you and evaluating you. You have uh, chief training officers who are sort of like the highest level who've been around for a long time who uh, uh, are a big part of the training flow of NASA flight controllers. You have flight directors, you have role play flight directors, you have your peers, other people in different disciplines going through training and they all listen to you make a mistake yeah, and it's exactly. known right. and it just eats up, you know. So that's a that's a rough day, but uh, that's why you sim. You, know, you sim so that you make mistakes that you don't make real time. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thank you for the question, Jamie. Uh, we've got one more from Ben Ebig. Hey, big and, old Ben. Uh, and down, Ben. We kind of touched on this already, but I think if you want to add any extra points to this, he just says, do you believe in aliens, Spaceman Max? Yes. So why why do you believe in aliens and why should other people, why, why should we believe in them? Um, so we have a uh, star with a few planets, one planet in the Goldilocks zone, and a plethora of life. You know, not one species that evolved, but, you know, a process of evolution that it seems not specific to this planet. It seems sort of specific to the way that when you have nitrogen, hydrogen, oxygen uh, together in one planet, it seems, it seems like it's a matter of time before life forms. So we already have, with the Hubble telescope, uh, a bunch of planets sort of in the Goldilocks zone of various stars that we can see. So it's sort of the idea that we have one example that it's possible to form life in the universe. Then you have an infinite number of universes and stars. It seems odd to think that we aren't aliens. It seems like a bizarre... I think if you take sort of a staunch religious aspect, you could maybe argue that you know God made man in the image of God and that uh, the planet is sort of like his gift or its gift to us. But uh, I think if you take a more scientific approach, uh, it seems almost silly to not believe that there's at least other life forms, uh, if not intelligent life. Yeah. I would be in agreement with you. 
We've got another question. This one comes from Jamie, and I think this is one that we can all answer. Okay. And he says, if you were approached by a major game developer to help make an all-new realistic space game, would you and what would it look like? So he wants to know, what do we want our space video game to look like if we had carte blanche in making one? Hmm. And I think this is a good question considering I was just very much inspired by all that we saw and considering how it like double backed into the fiction and the art that we see. And I love that little feedback loop of, yeah. you know what I mean? I have a, a just a quick idea, I guess. You know, I think mine, I think it would be interesting, you know, in the same way that like when you play there's no longer NCAA anymore, but you used to be able to either make a player or make a franchise. And I think it would be cool to just have an, an astronaut. You're trying to be an astronaut. And so you have to go through this stuff. You have to take different tests. You have to work on your guy's physical capabilities, on his mental capabilities. You get sims and stuff out the ass. <laughs> Dude, and then, sweet. you know, maybe that was like a th- the first third of the game. Yeah. And then once you get accepted, you get launched up and then it's like your initiative to take out whatever missions that get put on your thing. You just have endless missions that you could continue doing and we're going to go to this place or we're going to get this thing done or we're going to test this in ISS. And so, yeah, right. I don't know. Something like that. Normal Max, what do you want a space game to look like? I think that would be cool. I would think I would like really double down and then like halfway through the game, there's like a problem while you're in space. Right, mm-hmm. space problems. Yeah, so you get like <laughs> thrown problems. out there, and you get these classic space problems, and you have to try to handle them. This is all going to be in VR too, so you really feel like, Dude. Oh, okay. So the whole first half, after you complete it, you're technically certified to join NASA as an astronaut because it's so vivid and real. Pretty <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah. um, good. Yeah. Right. No, but then yeah, at the very end, like maybe you like do encounter space life and you have to make some very crucial decisions yeah and that could like affect how yeah and how is it affects humanity you have to make it's a bunch of choices that you have and you choose one and you got to keep making more choices on how you approach introducing this to mankind and things yeah. like that and, the, and then you get to see the repercussions game can end a bunch of different ways utter annihilation <laughs> um you know symbiotic experience with the aliens it's great so there's a so lot it of seems like, like, like mass effect meets like a training simulator exactly. like a more grounded <laughs> mass yeah. effect yeah. kind of exactly. yeah do you mass play do you play real. mass effect spaceman max are so you a I, space game kind of guy is it pretty much the same as space yeah so <laughs> there's literally no difference at all yeah. so I, I played mass effect one and got to a point where a professor told me to find his daughter uh-huh. but didn't tell me like where to look yeah and i looked through like three galaxies three different stars all the planets and i like, couldn't find her and i was like let's this game sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Three galaxies. I can't so find her she anywhere. She is not worth I checked like fuel. 30, 40 planets and like never found her. And I was like, I hate this game. Yeah. But I think, I think it, I'm sure there was like clues of like where I was supposed to look. And I just sure. like didn't put two and two together there. Um, well, you've played, you're a fan of uh, the Kerbal Space Program. Oh, yeah. And uh, have you ever played uh, Faster Than Light? No, I'm familiar with it. You would, I think you would love Faster Than Light. It's literally crisis management of your ship. Yeah. Um, you should check that out. But if you were to make a space video game, what would you make? Yeah, I think like the ultimate space game would be Kerbal Space Program meets No Man's Sky. Mm. Where like a massive multiplayer online like meets Minecraft kind of thing. Right. Like everyone has their own planet and you develop a space program and you make like space stations and you go to other planets and eventually there's like people on other planets making their own space agencies and you can like team up and make massive space stuff. You can have like galactic war at yeah, a certain right. level. You can get like them combative. So they don't threaten your own. Yeah, and you can like band together with your people or like take over your planet, and you can always like 
I want a different planet because this one guy is like, taking over my galaxy. I don't want to be here anymore. Or you can like, band up and fight him. Interplanetary racism exists. <laughs> yeah, a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. That's the meta game. That's, that's needed. <laughs> the meta game. It depends on you. Yeah. So I think that'd be pretty, pretty cool. Like a massive multiplayer online sandbox space game. Yeah, with, I feel like, like good mechanics. I feel like the approach that I'm thinking of right now when you were talking about like Goldilocks Zone and how like when you got nitrogen and oxygen in this specific combination at this specific distance, you're going to see these specific results. Mm. It would be really cool if you had a game where you would just create a planet and you would you would fill in the information of all of the variables that this planet kind of needs to be a planet and then from that you would see how life begins to uh, create itself and like basically your choices in the beginning of creating your planet would go on to set how that planet's life creates religion and then creates yeah, science god yeah and there's yeah, like a game god I love there's it. like a, there's like a goal where you know you got to like reach another galaxy first but you have to figure out what are the right conditions to do that and it's like a trial and error loop yeah I feel like that would be interesting would you manage the planet or like so you you have the initial conditions mm -hmm. then you put it in motion would you can you tweak that can you tweak the life or is it just like a simulator? Yeah, I feel like once, because uh, you would you would need something because you, the player needs something to do. I would uh, now I'm trying to think of like Civilization Six type tech trees and things like that. Sure. Mm -hmm. Or if instead of like telling the civilization exactly what to do, you instead have to influence it by like scientific means. You Maybe know? Like, like you you do like esoteric or weird messages that they have to interpret. Yeah, like, like okay, maybe they like, miss okay. the interpretation. Yeah, like my civilization's not really going in the direction they need to go with like their their. Um, uh, primitive like religion so I'm gonna fucking hit the plant with an asteroid <laughs> and see how that affects them you know like, fire yeah. <laughs> like make them on an island like I need you to build a bridge I need your architecture to get better yeah exactly you have to make a bridge to get to like the food like figure that out kind of thing <laughs> That's that's my, yeah, I that's like, I like all those. They're great games. I buy all four of these games. <laughs> yeah, put them in a pack. It's called the uh, Max Max Hunter Chase Trilogy. Yeah. I like it. The pack. Yeah, that's that's all the questions. Thank you, everybody, who wrote in uh, yeah. to help make this episode special. We're still sipping on our beers, but let's take one more break, come back, and do a little bit more talking, and then we'll uh, finish this episode out. Cool. Sounds good. All right. If you want to follow the show once the mics have turned off, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Witty Banter Show. Also, like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Witty Banter Podcast and help the show get discovered by leaving a review on iTunes. And finally, steer the conversation by sending a question to Witty Banter Show at gmail.com or suggest a beer for us to review by going to our website, wittybantershow.com. That's enough plugs. Let's get back to the show. All right, man. Last section here. Spaceman Max, you've prepared for us a game. I have. You, you know the competitive nature of Winnie Banter. It's important. It, it is. is a competitive chess. It drives the, the, the race, you know. Yeah. As it wedges us apart. <laughs> so you've come here with a game. What's, what are we playing and what are we playing for? That's right. Yeah, I can't compete with the uh, Metal or Magic helmet. I just can't <laughs> do it. I saw the pictures. It looked astounding. So I'm not even going to act like I'm going to compete with it. But I've got a uh, little five-question space trivia to see which banter is the actual space uh, guru. aficionado yeah. guru. We're competing. <laughs> there you go. Nice. We're competing for four <laughs> articles, one being a Mars or Bust sticker. It's pretty big. It's maybe the size of like a uh, cross-section of a softball. We've got the uh, classic NASA meatball sticker. That's what I'm, that's what I'm playing pretty for right there. Pretty big, too. Like, not <laughs> like them meatballs. A, a good size. Yeah. It is currently increment 50 
on board the International Space Station, and each increment has their own patch with their own cool artwork. Yeah, I dig so the patch. So we have an increment dope, 50 man. patch, which is, uh, I mean, it's pretty sturdy. It's a good, uh, good patch. 50 is a good number patch to have. It's the too. big 5-0. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The big 5-0. And then the last is the, uh, the coin. This is a coin made with metal from Skylab. Probably Skylab. the coolest thing here. Yeah, this is the real deal. <laughs> if I do say so myself. So, so we're calling this the space nothing, race, man. right? This is I mean it could definitely be the space race to five. Three, two, one, zero, all engine running. Okay. Space race to five. So we're gonna go through, gonna ask the question. Each of you guys are gonna give me an answer, and then whoever has the highest score at the end wins. Right. How would y'all like to rotate y'all like to rotate who goes first like uh counterclockwise? We'll figure it out. Okay, okay. Let, let the details play we'll themselves out. We'll figure it out. Okay, we'll we'll figure it out. Let the, the ball roll, roll dude. All right. Let's let's roll. Best sports have no rules. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you can't look at my laptop screen cuz the answer is there. All right. So, yeah, well, all right. Classic chase. Yeah, for real. So, question number 1. <laughs> I live on the other side of you guys. The Apollo 11 12 and 14 astronauts were put into quarantine after returning from the moon for fear of moon disease. Is that true or false? I say true. false. So we have Chase saying false. We have Max saying true. Hunter. Four, uh, false. Yeah, 14. Four, uh, 14. <laughs> I'm thinking of Apollo 14. I'm going to say false. It is true. Five. Max no, Scott shit. with the one. There we go. We How do they go disease. so many Apollos and then start quarantine? Come on. <laughs> so yeah, Apollo 11 went, uh, was the first mission to land on the moon. So 12, uh, 11, and 14 all sat in quarantine uh, to make sure there wasn't any like sort of moon madness, any parasites, any weird yeah. microbes we didn't know about on the moon. Wow. Can you imagine so coming back and be like, well, here's the deal, man. You're you infected with alien <laughs> viruses. You're turning into a moon. <laughs> yeah. You're the next moon. We got to ship you out this space. <laughs> <laughs> so right. that is Max Scott plus one. Pulls yeah. Coming yeah. out hot. Well I done. Like that. Thank you. Butter them up, yeah. All right. <laughs> Number two. Again, true-false, guys. Flip okay. the coin here. Keep right. it Flip easy the coin. I appreciate it. The Apollo crews did not have any life insurance. True or false? I'm going to say true. Sounds like a fun fact. It's true. It's definitely false. true. Again, true. Dang. They did not have obvious. life insurance. Mm-hmm. The Apollo 11 crew before launching actually signed a bunch of memorabilia and pictures to sort of try to pay off if they didn't make it home alive. They could probably sell the pictures. Wow. And try to make some money for their family. Damn. <laughs> Holy crap. So that's, that's their life brutal. insurance is their signature. That's crazy. Fuck. So we got two, one, and zero. Mm-hmm. I'm coming for you, dude. I see you. And you know what? Hey, you know what? Don't, don't leave me Don't count them out. out, yeah. I don't like that. Collusion. <laughs> <laughs> Collusion. Collusion. Yeah. All right, number three. Sandra Bullock's crying scene in the film Gravity was an accurate depiction of how tears would perform in space. False. Sort of floating off in little kind of spheres, little droplets. That's not right. Max true. saying a hard false. I, I'm gonna say true. I'm gonna give it a true. We got we got two trues. That is false. Can I tell you uh, why? That's <laughs> false. For a bonus point. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely you can. Because the water would still stick to your face. And that's why there's like God you could it. drown from all the water it's being that's why that's like a big true. thing is like it's water can get to you and like that for the vander holes or whatever vander holes forces absolutely you would cry and it would form a little bubble right over your eye and then once it got big enough to bridge your nose it would bridge your nose and hit your other eye. So that's a big fear when you're doing spacewalks. We also cool the suit with ammonia. So if ammonia breaches into your suit, you can uh, you start crying. It, it hurts your eyes really bad. Yeah. So if it gets into one eye and you start tearing up, you better hope you don't tear up enough for the ammonia to cross the bridge into your other eye and make the other one sting as well. 
Wow. So there's Shit. a big fear of, you know, watery stuff and one eye breaching over to your other eye. There's so. no crying in spice. <laughs> Ain't no crying. This Man America. up or shut up. <laughs> Man, so what, what are we at right now? 310. 3-1-0. Automatically out of this. We might, have to, <laughs> we might have to tap into the extra questions. I've got again. 10. I've got 10. I'm, I'm, I'm opting for 10. <laughs> okay. Trust me. I'm waiting for that comeback. So I, this is a more of a short answer. So this might take a little bit longer, but I am curious what your guys' answer. So, um, on Earth, we have calloused bottoms of our feet and mm-hmm. smooth tops of our feet as Makes we walk sense. around. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When astronauts return from the ISS, they have very smooth bottoms of their feet mm-hmm. and calloused tops of their feet. Yeah. Why is this? I'm going to say because they're using their feet to like latch onto bars and stuff to keep them anchored. So like they'll sit in, they'll slip their feet in. And then the tops of their feet are kind of like what's catching against the, the bars. That is absolutely correct. Yeah, what's up? <laughs> is it really? After a few weeks in space, you start taking off your socks, and there's just dead skin cells everywhere. Check it All out. the calluses on your feet are getting everywhere, and it is gross. Yeah. Your yeah. entire body, your bottoms of your feet are the worst, but you pretty much your clothes are sort of hovering around you because your clothes never like, touch yeah. your skin. So, man, when you take off that sock a few weeks in, it's just big skin flakes. And it is gross. Wait, so I get why you, yeah, so you lose your calluses. But why, again, do you gain calluses? Because you're trying to stabilize. You still have to work on, like, a payload. Yeah, if you want to so hear my answer feet. again, just, just ask. <laughs> just rewind the episode? Yeah. <laughs> just hit the 15 button a couple oh, so times. There you go. So you, like, hook yourself on something is exactly. the idea? So you're not floating all over? That's yeah. Cool. Okay. I don't think I would have guessed that. But I just figured well out with, like, monkey toe it. Like, when you just, like... <laughs> Does a bar, monkey the bars it. are maybe three inches Have you long? seen my toes? <laughs> <laughs> fair. I haven't. That's fair. That's fair. So that's right. what, 320? Yeah, 320. Fuck. Oh, you got to hop in on those, on those short be a, answers. It might be a lightning that round. That wasn't even fair. <laughs> so the last of the five is going to be... Let's get this tiebreaker in here. Uh, boomerangs do not work in microgravity. True or false? Oh, man. Uh, a they boomerang should. would not work in microgravity, true no. or false? I would I say think false. They would still work. They or, should work, yeah. Or no, I would say that they would not. So I would say true, I guess. Yeah, the, 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 the statement is boomerangs do not work in microgravity. I'd say so, true. I would say that they do work like you. That should still work. I'm going to say that it doesn't work. Because I'm thinking, like, it, actually, I'm not going to try to explain my reasoning because I could be totally wrong. <laughs> I'm going to dunkus. I'm going to say they do not work. So Chase is a no, they do not work. Hunter is a no, they do not work. And Max is saying they do. Yes. They absolutely work in microgravity. What? God damn it. Yeah, they do. How? Without like air. It's science. <laughs> yeah. It's just science, really. This review of the answer. book? Science. Oh, I'm sorry. In microgravity. So on the ISS, they would work. In the vacuum of space, they would not work. See, yeah, that's... So oh, maybe so that's saying, where... You were thinking that? I was, you thought I'm on the space the ISS. Yeah. You know, you throw boomerangs to yourself all, all right. the time. Yeah, Enjoy the <laughs> asterisk, dude. Okay. Yeah. When, we, <laughs> when we say microgravity, is that just uh, artificially created gravity? Is that like what we're saying? So when you're, on, when you're in orbit, it's not like there's no gravity. Right. There's still gravity. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's such a minuscule amount. Like Jupiter is still pulling on you. Right, of course. Like Jupiter right now is pulling on all of us sitting at this table. Yeah, everything and is pulling on everything. I don't yeah, think so. exactly. <laughs> That's wrong. <laughs> That's, no. I don't think so. I think but that's right. sort of the idea. It's like, it's not zero G because there is gravity, but it's just at a microscopic level that doesn't impact anything. So, how, do you, how do you artificially, I guess like an interstellar, they would just go into, they would spin? A centrifugal, yeah. Yeah, so is that, is that a real thing? That oh, works? yeah. NASA had plans to make one for the ISS. The idea is kind of when you have like a bucket of water and you swing it over your head and it stays right. in the bucket, same idea. 
Yeah. They're just flinging yourself against the, the surface. And if it spins, has a proper radius and spins fast enough, you can simulate a 1G environment. Yeah. And then you can just work out and like lift bench press in a 1G <laughs> environment. It would be way easier. Yeah. But you have to have motors that are spinning this module, which is kind of scary. It would just continue to spin like after you started it? Well, it would be on bearings, right? So it would eventually, just due to friction, it would slow down and stop hmm. okay. over time. So you'd need a motor to keep it going. Okay. Okay. So on that note, did Interstellar just get it right? How do you mean? Get All right. of the science. Oh, wow. Your Any... snark really paid off there. Dude, man. Uh, now you're oh, stuck in a trap. Uh, <laughs> uh, from the uh, <laughs> deliberate. Uh, so, damn it, Max. You got four. Max dude, is the winner. Max yeah. got. That was, that was decisive as fuck. I had some like less sneaky stuff, like what percent of the solar system's mass is carried in the sun? What percent of the solar system's mass is carried in the sun? I'm going to say a solid, like, 95% like a lot of it's in that sun. The 95? Yeah. So I just don't know how dense the of sun the is. Of the mass? The, the solar system has a, a, a certain amount of mass. What percent of that mass is in the sun? I'd have to say most too. Is it like half? Is it like three quarters? Is it like say, 95%? Say, I'd say 98%. 45%. Wow. 45. Uh-huh. It's 99.8%. See? Fucking goddamn it. <laughs> <laughs> And That's amazing. One, one At more, least I one didn't more, troll this thing. <laughs> one more Go quick, one cool. Yeah, Max Scott, I think, is a winner. But one more cool one is the uh, how much time does it take for the sun's light to reach Earth? Oh, it's like a couple mm, seconds, right? 30 minutes. So we got a couple seconds. We got 30 minutes. What was the question? How much time <laughs> does it take for the sun's light to reach Earth? For the sun's light to reach Earth. 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 <laughs> Earth. Earth. What is Earth? Yeah. I don't understand I the won. question. How far away is Earth? <laughs> sun and Earth. Um... I'm going to say... <laughs> so what, we got 30 seconds? Is that I you said say? 30 minutes. 30 minutes, and you said... A few seconds. A few yeah. seconds. Yeah, I'm going to say, like, borderline instantly. I'm going to say even faster than Chase says. It takes eight minutes. Oh, okay. So if the sun were to explode and like at noon, we it would take eight less minutes sneaky bullshit before you would realize yeah, it. Yeah, come on. Yeah, I think that goes to Hunter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. so it's kind of a neat thing. Gravity uh, travels at the same speed as light waves. So, yeah. if, again, if the sun exploded right now, Earth wouldn't know it for eight minutes. Jeez. That is actually really weird. It yeah. might have exploded seven minutes ago. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I'm glad that this sucks. is the last thing that I did. <laughs> you think gravity I'm glad I won. travels? <laughs> and, and gravitational waves. Yeah, man. So there's actually like gravity waves. Yeah, I remember waves. we learned about gravitational waves through this double there was black a, hole thing, right? Yeah, there was a fear that maybe, or not a fear, an idea that gravity might be instantaneous. Mm -hmm. That if like the sun were to explode, you would instantaneously feel the gravity waves. And that's not true. Like gravity does travel at the speed of light. That is wild as fuck. Is I think like the leading space. theory. <laughs> so oh, Max Scott, space. I award you a yes. Mars or Bust sticker with an SLS and the new rocket. You better hand some of these out when we get to the the crib, man. You Max well, Scott, I award you stuff. a NASA meatball sticker. Ooh, there we go. It's beautiful. <laughs> Max Scott, I award you a increment this fifty. This I want the patch. patch. I want the patch. Yeah, that's cool, dude. <laughs> and the sick. Skylab coin made with real metal from the Skylab space station, the predecessor to the ISS. Bruce that's Willis gave it to Ben go, Affleck baby. before they saved the world. <laughs> <laughs> that's the coin. <laughs> that, that is, is the coin. coin. Normal from the Max movie? That's great. <laughs> is now decorated Max. Yes, there yeah. we go. This okay. is beautiful. Well, we're coming to the end of the show here. Before we make our final decisions on the beer, Max Kelleher, now that you're on the show yeah. and you've listened to it for a little while, this is kind of the speak now forever holds your peace section. Sure. Airing of grievances. Yes. Is there anything really that you want to throw out there in relation to what's been going down in the witty banter sphere? 
Yeah, man. The only thing that I had sort of a little beef with was the aliens. The aliens, pro alien. Just the no love for aliens. You said you uh, you played Inside though, right? Sure. And you liked Inside? Loved it. Cool. That's all. Loved it. That's really well. I brought this up. (laughs) And man, oh yeah. Next time you guys come through, we have to do a primer review. Yeah. 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 That's our fault. That movie is so. Good. Really? I'm gonna oh, have to check it out for it sure. Is, Shit. It is. Yeah. It, it demands at least three watches minimum. <laughs> well, demands it. we've got homework. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's cool. awesome, man. Yeah, Max, I can't thank you enough for taking us on the tour, uh, yeah, for having a, having us here in your house and letting us watch Bear do his thing. Absolutely. That was <laughs> yeah. really the highlight of the day. <laughs> that honestly was. For Bear's performance. Just Bears. I'll um, never forget. And the encore that we didn't yeah. even feel like we deserved. Plural, he, yeah. he still gave it to us. Absolutely. We, we really appreciate you listening to the show and always emailing us um, with really thought-provoking questions. I feel like you've been a really awesome touchstone of what witty banter has become this year so thank you it means a lot to have you on the show so thank you so much for coming thank you guys for having me man this is a blend it's been a blast i really yeah. enjoyed this the your tour first podcast uh yeah first time being on yeah. a podcast man we did he's, a natural. One. he's a natural uh, well he's leading tours it. man yeah, he's leading tours okay um well let's end this very special witty in space episode and give our final thoughts on the legion russian imperial style from community Okay, you wanna you wanna start us off since this is your go-to. Let me give it one more sit before I really jump into this. Okay, pucker up, man. <laughs> God damn, that is such an outstanding beer. That is the the maltiness and the full-bodiedness that you would expect from like kind of a, a darker porter or a full stout, mixed with uh, a little bit of sweetness from the chocolate. It's not overly bitter like other sort of Russian Imperial Stouts or other Stouts that I've had. Um, I just don't feel like I would get sick of this beer. I think it would be a delicious beer for almost any occasion other than like a hot summer day. I might not enjoy <laughs> On a the beach. really <laughs> full-bodied stout. But man, I, I kind of judge my beers with what I want to be playing chess while I drink it. Nice. And I would I like absolutely that. want to be drinking this beer. So man, it's a, that's a 9 out of 10 for me. This is an outstanding beer. Very yeah, cool. I just want to follow that up. That when we first tried this beer, I was just like, "Man, I'm caught off guard." But like, I thought it was gonna be sweeter. I thought it was gonna be more like velvety and like smoother. Mm-hmm. But that sort of ended up like paying off in the long run because by the time I was like halfway through this beer, I was like, "This is perfect. Yeah. I can yeah. keep drinking this all the way down to that last sip that I just took." I would easily pour up another glass of this. This is a really awesome beer with a really awesome name and really <laughs> awesome label on it too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, those that that's like, it sweetens itself up a little bit just naturally. Um, and just as it warms up, it ends up just getting better the whole time. So I also really like this beer. I'm going to copy your score. Nine, 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 nine. Nine, nine, ten. Okay. Hunter. So, um, oh, I'm glad I picked this one Let's do that <laughs> yeah. first. Yeah, but uh, I fucking hate it. <laughs> at least go away with that little victory. Um, you know, I, I, I am, this is also up my alley. This is the kind of beer that I like. Um, it holds its alcohol very well. I think, you know, it's 10%. Um, and even though you get that and it's kind of hot, it's not like, damn, this is like syrupy, like just way too, too much. Um, I do like the interplay between the sweetness and the bitterness. It's almost like it's sweet because of the chocolate, but it's also bitter because of the chocolate, um, yeah. which is which which you like. But the, but you're not getting just a whole mouthful of chocolate in this thing. Um, and I and I think it's appropriately bitter. 
I like the hotness. Um, it I, I like it as it's opened up more so than when whenever we first poured it like real cold. Um, and so yeah, it's it's delivering basically everything I would want in this type of beer. So I'm gonna I'll give it an eight point five. I think I've had other ones that I like a little bit more. They might even be a little bit different. Um, like you know, like the uh, the temptress. I think that one might be one that I would say like maybe I like that one a little bit more than this, and I think it gave that one a nine. So, but this is like an incredibly solid beer for sure. Yeah, I think this one has definitely earned its keep in the echelon of like fantastic beers in this style. Like yeah. if I see this yeah. and I and I want to recommend somebody a roasted beer, like this is going to be one that comes up. Mm-hmm. Something I want to point out is how interesting the bitterness in this beer is. Mm-hmm. It's got the 70 IBUs, and so there's like clearly a lot of bitterness from the hops and like the hop oils and stuff like that, but it also talks about on the label the fire roasted um, malt that they put in that kiln. I think a lot of the bitterness is coming from that as well, like yep. almost on the razor's edge of burning it too much, but just <laughs> enough, Yeah, you know? <laughs> and I think that there is a wonderful spectrum of flavor here where on the lighter side you have the sweet notes, which like hit you really well. Then there's like a medium bodied velvetiness there where a lot of um, like the candy and just chocolate notes hit. And then there's that dark, powerful bitterness as well at the very end. And mm-hmm. all of those are just like kind of moving around in tandem. Yeah. And it's just like an awesome experience, dude. Yeah. Like they totally nailed this one. This beer yeah. is fantastic. So yeah, definitely thumbs up to community for yeah. this one. For I sure. think this is the pick. Okay. Yes. Of the night. Yeah. Well, hold on. What? <laughs> Max, yeah. between the two beers that you've had tonight, which one edges out the other one? Man, I, I think edging out would be a compliment <laughs> to the sour. I think <laughs> this legion just stomps oh, on that, it, man, at, at a personal level. Mm-hmm. I could see people who are really into sort of gesturing and like those sours, a wild sour, I think might be right up their alley and kind of mm-hmm. what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. But man, as far as I am, I'm a stout porter guy through and through, motor oil, yeah. yeah, I like that roasted malt Coca-Cola looking beer. This is like a storybook this beer. This guy crushes you know, like it. Fantasy shit. Well, I think it speaks for a lot to say that you say that you're such a like a big stout and porter fan, but I'm not necessarily somebody who like, you know, puts myself in there. I like like the breakfast stout from Founders. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so that one's good. really good, of course. But that yeah. one's like good to everybody, right? Yeah. For more true. like most of the time I'm very just like, okay, this is just a big thick beer. But right. I mean, even to me, somebody who doesn't normally care for it, it also speaks a lot. So I think it's really cool that to somebody who likes beer or stouts, it's really good. Somebody who wouldn't normally like stouts it's really good. Probably could put it on your radar. As the the motor oil man out there. Stamp of approval. It it barely doesn't edge out the milk stout nitro from left hand. Oh my God, dude. That's That's what got me into this style. It just barely does not edge that out. But man, it is nipping at the heels. I like the bitterness of this that and I I don't think that's as present in the in the left hand one. But yeah. 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 However, though, I mean it could be higher in the chugometer, so (laughs) Yeah. You gotta knock it a little bit. You can't yeah, not giving us the chugometer that we need. well that's been the end of the episode of banter in space or whatever the hell we're going to call it but um, <laughs> I'm not going to do the usual, the usual plugs because we'll probably be putting this one into circulation um, I'm not exactly sure when it's going to air so the welcome Couple to weeks. the past people yeah. in the future <laughs> is it like February? Is it March? Right? Yeah, I know, I think it's Where, 2018 
Okay. Um, yeah. So Max Keller, again, thank you so much. Do you want us to plug anything about like maybe where we can find you or on Twitter or anything like that? Do you care to really no, give me that out? I don't right. have a Twitter or Instagram. I don't good. You're a better man for it. Yeah. <laughs> Off the grid, huh? Too good. Cool. For no, I rock. See, I'm, I'm just too good. Honestly, I'm too good for it. I like it to go outside and like <laughs> smell the earth. Like personal human relationships. Once you've seen do. someone in space, <laughs> you're just <laughs> you're a better person for it. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be the one thing I would change about the globe if I could is that world leaders need to go into low Earth orbit before they can lead a country. Wow! Really? It I would just, love to see Trump do that. It would be the <laughs> greatest throw up everything. all over himself. He's like, it was a great would. trip. It was a fantastic trip. It was, yeah. The Earth is huge. The Earth is huge. <laughs> the Earth is huge. It's huge. It's huge. <laughs> and I'm in charge. <laughs> all right. Uh, let's go ahead and put an end to this one. It's been an awesome, memorable experience. Max, thank you for being on. Yeah, absolutely, man. It was, so it was a blast. And uh, hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. But this has been Witty Banter. Good night, everybody. Podcast is out of this world. So really the, the episode's broken out by Bears peeing. <laughs> yes. Oh, Bears unity. Let's I think go I'm ahead gonna, and take a break now. I think I'm going to insert a little, uh, like a little... <laughs> Blurb, like just just the sound of running water, oh God. and then just like bear peas part one. Bear peas part one. Yeah, the return of bear's piss. <laughs> bear's pee strikes back. <laughs>